I've been watching that uh, documentary series on Disney Plus called Light and Magic, all about um, Industrial Light and Magic, the special effects company that was founded by George Lucas uh, to do this. I guess it was in 76 to to do the uh, special effects for the first Star Wars movie, you know? And just really an incredible, incredible story, at least, you know, especially the beginning part where no one really knew what they were doing and they had this uh, this kind of like this warehouse space in Van Nuys, California and uh, that was just this, this bunch of you know, really talented young people that started to sort of invent the ways to, uh, to create all the special effects shots and that kind of subculture they had in the company it looked like they had a lot of fun you know, when you really think about people having fun if you look at the 1970s, it seems people that were in like their early 20s in the 1970s were having the most fun of anyone, okay, in the multiverse. I don't know what it is. I, w- I was, uh, well, I was never the sort to, uh, I-, I always was kind of a, a loner and I was sort of, always sort of a wallflower kind of a person, but I was still a little bit young. As, as, uh, as the 70s started, what was I, about three, only about 13 when it ended, some, something like that. Um, but I sort of missed out on that. You see, you know, especially central to it is sort of that van culture, right? The, all of the uh, these young guys, these usually young guys, like putting together this uh, this incredible van, which is almost like a little mini motorhome, right? And it's like creating their own like little world. It's really so inspirational, and that was something that really only uh, existed in the uh, in the nineteen seventies. Excuse me, let me stand over here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm walking around the block here. It's a sunny but cold morning. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was just it was just weird because I was walking I was just walking along and someone crossed the street and started walking right behind me. So I, I need personal space when I'm recording. Come on. I used to walk around the block every morning. But I lost motivation after a couple years of working from home because of the pandemic. Remember, I used to go on so many walks. I walked around the block in the morning, then went on a long walk in the afternoon. It was very healthy to go for walks. But I lost motivation. I need to get that motivation back. You know, you know what they say. My, my get up and go has gone, got up and went. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, I really, I don't know what happened to me. I love walking. Why did I lose motivation? I need to get it back. But anyway, it did seem like there was a lot of fun in the 70s. You know, with the vans, as I was mentioning. There's a whole concept of... And I don't know, I've never really seen an analysis of, um, of why that van culture... It must have had something to do with... Because I know, um, you know, things to do with automobiles, like repairing your own engine and stuff, like they changed the way the cars were made so that... You know, back in the 50s or 60s, like a, a teenager could, you know, in their garage, they could they could essentially dismantle a car and rebuild it. They could they could dismantle an engine and rebuild it, right? They could, right? It was it was accessible to the average person. And now, apparently, there's no way you could do that with with modern cars. Of course, you could still do it with the older cars, but they're getting older all the older and older all the time, right? Um, why don't Why don't they make a car? Like, if that was such a great cultural thing, right, f- for young adults to, uh, 
customize their cars and rebuild their engines. Like, why wouldn't you make like a brand new vehicle that had all those aspects, right? That that had an engine that you could rebuild and stuff. I think the problem is it just sounds incredibly expensive, right? Because <laughs> back then you would just get like a, an old used car and then sort of rebuild it yourself. If they were making them new to be rebuilt, they'd be incredibly expensive. Hmm. I suppose. But yeah, with the vans, it, it seems that, right, obtaining a van and then customizing it, uh, putting in new windows, like, like in the back there were these uh, shaped windows of different shapes like diamonds and stars and stuff. And of course the paint job and each van had a name. It was sort of like, right, how boats are supposed to have a name, but cars don't need to have a name, but vans had names, you know. You know, like the Dread Baron or, you know, Super Phantom or whatever they would call it. And it would be mostly like airbrush art on the sides. And then the interiors would would contain, it, it was meant to be like a living space uh, with lots of shag carpeting inside. Shag carpeting was very popular back then inside the home and inside vans as well. And, uh, you know, whatever you could have uh, electronics wise, television sets. Uh, radios, you know, stereo systems, and of course a bed, because I think the dream was to sort of have this mobile home where you could sort of engage in private activities with 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 your significant other, and uh, yeah, it's just and and there were these van meetings and everything, and yeah, what's this, what's that one movie that really kind of what's the name of that movie that um. I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's, it's like graduation day in like 1977. And it sort of shows how much fun people were having back then. I can't remember the name of that movie. What the hell? You know the one I'm talking about. Matthew McConaughey's in it. I'm going to have to look this up online. Let me, let me stand by this building over here and uh, pause and look up the name of this movie that I can't quite recall. But I do have a, a, a supercomputer connected to all world knowledge in my pocket. And so do you. We don't have to wonder things anymore. We can look it up. Yeah, it was the movie Dazed and Confused from 1993. Right? And I remember we had the sound, the soundtrack album was, was really good, but they didn't have Dazed and Confused by uh, Led Zeppelin on there for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, right, that was a good song been dazed and confused for so long it's not true <laughs> what was that it's not something i don't know wanted a woman but i settled for you what is that the lyric and then it goes but yeah it kind of it kind of gives that vibe so i think it really was kind of a, a confluence of economics laws society at the time and then in the into the 80s a lot of stuff changed you know because it's about you know kids hanging out you know this is before the age of any kind of cell phones or any kind of social media so you had to go and i remember doing this too to, to some degree you know going and uh, hanging just going to a place to see if people were there to hang out you know and uh yeah, the vans must have had to do with economics. Like, if you if you had like a 
a, a job when you're still in high school. You can save up money for your van, you know, stuff like that. But probably, as time went on, the relative cost of such things got greater and greater. Because I've done a bit of research on it. It does seem that the van thing really only survived from 1970 to 1979. I know you see there's kind of a uh, similar but different van culture in Japan. That's a fairly more recent, but it's... uh, Yeah, it's different, though. So anyway, this this special effects crew at uh, Industrial Light and Magic, you know... It, just seeing that that culture that they had, and how they they were just inventing things, and how everyone, even George Lucas himself, was inc- totally disappointed in them. He thought they were complete fuck ups, and that they were just wasting his money. Right? He was really angry. But in the end, they succeeded, obviously, and they won. A, <laughs> the, the special effects team won an Academy Award for special effects. But then there was that guy. Was John Dykstra? Is that, is that his name? He led the he led the whole thing, and then George Lucas fired him. Essentially, it's not that simple. I mean, it's it's a bit more com- complex than that. But and they address it a bit. Apparently, it was the first time they really John Dykstra and George Lucas. It's the first time they kind of talked about it. This series is from a few years ago. I don't know why I just discovered it. It's right up my alley, and I have Disney Plus. I don't know why I didn't watch it before. I'm not even done watching it yet. Um. But yeah, seeing those scenes of them, like in the parking lot, they had like a like a a little a little like swimming pool thing. They I guess they got some sort of container and filled it with water. It was like a little hot tub that they were in, and they had like a slip and slide in the parking lot, and they were just kind of out of control. But they were like creating the next level of special effects for cinema. They were essentially inventing the next the next uh, phase of Hollywood. And uh, amazingly, amazingly, I also was on a special effects crew in the 1970s, though not anywhere near as, uh, as uh, having as much fun. I was very young, but uh, it wasn't the 70s, right? It was like 79. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I was 12. And I've told this story before. This is such an obscure movie that my dis- my talking about this years ago here on the Overnightscape is pretty much the the only hit you'll get fi- searching for uh, Super Kids Two: The Mystery of the Tristand that I was on the special effects crew for. <laughs> Somehow, I I actually like it's just weird that I actually w- did that in the seventies, the later seventies. I'm sure they were inspired by uh, Star Wars. Uh, this movie is nowhere to be found. The guy that made it, Ralph Davies or Davison, he's nowhere to be found. Some people that were in the movie did email me over the years. But uh, what happened was, I uh, we saw in the newspaper, probably the Courier News, the local newspaper where I grew up in Bridgewater, New Jersey, and actually worked there as a weekend job. Um, for a few years, it was <laughs> that was in the mid '80s. Uh, yeah, I, I worked on like Saturday night putting together the Sunday edition. They needed extra people, 
So I just was, I stood there by the machine and I usually fed the comic section into this hopper as this big machine constructed, you know, how they used to have the massive Sunday editions of the papers. I don't know if they still do that. Just these huge, like, massive, this huge, massive publication, the newspaper, the comic sections, advertising inserts, everything. And you know what? That kind of was also kind of like hanging out with people, being on this crew, you know. I remember there was a guy... I think he just worked there on the weekends like me, but he said like he, he had been a trucker and he was talking about like when you're trucking, you have to like drive all night and he's like, you have to speed to, to, you know, because the way it's set up is if you don't exceed the speed limit that you, you'll never make enough money, right? You'll never get like the way they set it up. This is what he was saying. Like the companies, they like give you these assignments and they're like, you know, safety first, don't, don't exceed the speed limit, this and that. But then he said you really couldn't get from point A to point B without speeding. And he said that uh, at, that, at that time you had to keep, like, a written log. We had to log in, like, whenever you stop somewhere and give the time and stuff. And he's like, you, if you had a log book and you said, I, I, I went from this point, point A to point B, and here's the timestamps, and they see that you're... It would be impossible at that point. I think it was still 55, right? Remember the 55 miles an hour during the gas? They, they instituted that during the gas crisis. 55 saves lives. Yeah. It's a big mess. Na- the, nation, the whole nationwide 55 mile an hour speed limit. I think because it saved fuel, right? If you drove faster, you know, yeah, you're going to get there faster, but you're wasting more gas going the same distance, apparently. Well, I think Sammy Hagar summed it up quite succinctly in his mid-80s hit. I can't drive 55. You know, people were annoyed. They got rid of that eventually, you know. Here in Jersey, it's 65, and I know most other places like 75. For like a big highway, you know. Not the local roads. On this road, people should go 25. But when people drive down my street, they're like, I can't drive. 25. Yes, you can. It's a neighborhood. Don't, don't, where are you trying to go so fast? Why are you in a rush all the time? Drive 25 miles an hour. And if you're going 28, no problem. Just, you know, when you, once you get into the 30s, you know, slow down a bit. You know what I'm saying? Oh, look, here's that house. Across the street from me, the flippers bought. They're, they're removing the siding from the house. You see sort of the raw wood they're rebuilding it so they can sell it for a profit flipping yes yeah I think I mentioned this the other day they, there's these people that drive around <laughs> these all the neighborhoods where the prices are real high like my neighborhood like it's a very I think they, they're going down again but you know during the pandemic this was like a real kind of a a lot of sections of New Jersey I think were really shot up a nice little neighborhood pretty close to New York City but I think what people realize is that New York City is great, wonderful, but if you have to stay in your apartment all day, a little tiny apartment all day long, it's not fun because of the pandemic. So people wanted to move out where they have a, a little bit more land, a house. And considering these condos or apartments in, in New York City, you can move. I'm essentially only 12 miles away from the city. You can buy a house for however much a little tiny apartment costs, like a one-bedroom apartment. You can buy an actual house, and then you just have to commute, you know. So there's these guys that uh, drive around 
neighborhoods where the prices are pretty high looking for houses that are in, a st- in, in states of disrepair, disheveled. They can just see that there's, there's a problem there, you know. And then, so th- they apparently have been pretty successful because this one right across from me, they, I guess they walked up to the door and knocked on the door and the guy, kind of a troubled individual, uh, they're like, listen, we give you money to, to buy your house. And he did. He left. You know, I, I think I saw him like a week or two ago. And he's gone. He moved somewhere else. They see it as like, you know, you don't have to go through the whole process of getting a realtor and setting. You, they're, they're like, listen, literally, we'll buy your house, walk away, take what you want, and we'll deal with the rest. Apparently, this house was full of a bunch of junk. I guess there's a hoarding situation going on. So that's got to be kind of appealing. Just walk away, you know. You don't have to. You don't have to market your house. You don't have to stage it. Just, just walk away. And then also the next town over, Belleville, my my in-laws, right next door to them, the same thing. The house was 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 in a bit of disrepair. Those flippers, I think it was different flippers. They went up to the house and like, listen, same deal, you know. Like we'll get, we'll buy your house. You could, you don't have to clean it out. You could just take what you want and walk away with the money, and we'll we'll take it from there, you know. So they also had huge dumpsters just taking all the junk out. People just left a ton of junk there and, you know. Only problem was one of these big dump trucks that they were pouring junk in, they didn't put the safety brake on, so it, so it, like, it started, it crashed into my father-in-law's car. But he got it fixed, though, since then. That was a couple of months ago, you know. But I suppose that this is so, I'm, I'm, and I guess you, you know, you can pay an amount Obviously, it's less than the house was if the house was in good repair. Then you have to put money in to fix it up, and then you can sell it. A flipper. My house was flipped. That flipper didn't really do a super great job. We had to do a lot of stuff once we bought it. But, but we love our house here, so I think it was the right house for us. It has character. It's an old house. I think those houses across the street are even older. They're from like circa 1900-ish that kind of time period. This was a, this was a very desirable. Uh, place to live around 1900 right it, it was uh it was called prospect heights at the time and uh it was like uh because there was a train that went went you know i think you could take it to jersey city or hoboken and then take a ferry to new york in 1900 so if you had the money this would be the place to move so those houses are from you know 100 and 120 130 years ago Now, of course, <laughs> it's always kind of creepy to point out. In, in 1900, when these houses were built, you know, there's a world full of people. Imagine an entire world of people, billions of people. There was a, a couple billion in 1900, I believe. Every last one of them is now deceased, right? Uh, because I just saw an article as whoever keeps track of this. I don't know, the Guinness Corporation, the oldest person, the oldest living person, uh, was 118 just died recently? I think I saw that story. Right. So obviously, the 1900 is 123 years ago. So, as far as we know, everyone that was alive back then. Listen, there could be vampires, androids, you know, immortals of god, gods, demigods of various sorts. We don't know if these exist, but if they do, those there could be people that were al- still alive, but not that we know of. You know, otherwise, the entire Every single person on Earth is dead. It's, it's like insane, right? If you look at it from that perspective. Ugh. 
What is up with this cigar? It like it stopped working. It went out. Hold on. <coughs> okay, I paused and relit it with my Zippo. I know that I know cigar, cigar purists are like never use a Zippo lighter to light a cigar. Apparently the fumes somehow. But then people said if you use Zippo brand uh, lighter fluid that it it's not as bad. But it's just so convenient. It's just such an easy lighter, you know. I saw that the lighter fluid I had, uh, it said bottled in, like, Branford, Pennsylvania. I think that's where Zippo is based. It's sort of like, I wonder if it's like, uh, like, if you go there, can you, like, take a tour of the Zippo factory or something? I need to look into that. Where is Bradford or Branford or whatever it is? Let let, Let me take a quick look at that. Maybe that'll be a new mission to go visit the Zippo Corporation. All right, hold on. We got it here. Zippo Case Museum and Flagship Store in Bradford, Pennsylvania. Yes, you can go there. Look, I kind of figured. Zippo Case Museum, 1997 to 2002. What? It shut down? Wait a minute. What is that? Oh no, they had a 20, 25 year anniversary. Wow, Zip, Zippo Case Museum. What is going on here? It's like a weird pop-up. Bradford, Pennsylvania is home to not just... Is home... Wait. Bradford, Pennsylvania is home to not just to Zippo lighters and case knives, but also to a commitment to the craft and quality synonymous with Made in America. Something wrong with that sentence. Bradford, Pennsylvania is home to not just to Zippo lighters and case knives, but also to a commitment to the crafting. How many times did he use the word two in that sentence? Two! We invite you to visit the Zippo slash case museum. I didn't know about the whole case knives. They also make knives there? I know there's a whole knife culture. I'm not really into knives. Where fans and collectors from across the globe gather to experience the rich history of these two American icons. Come explore 15,000 square foot attraction that includes the world famous Zippo Repair Clinic and Zippo Case Flagship Store. 14 custom made Zippo lighters lined the drive leading up to the building. Over the entrance towers a 40 foot Zippo lighter with pulsating neon flame and an enormous case canoe three blade pocket knife. Enjoy a self guided tour to learn the rich history of two American icons. Okay, so where is this? Because when it comes to Pennsylvania, right? Pennsylvania is this big rectangular state, and New Jersey is on the right side of it, the eastern side, right? So a place like, remember I went to, um, I went to Allentown a few months back. That was a cool, that was a cool adventure, right? Um, that's not that far. That's like an hour and a half from here. But the other side of Pennsylvania, like uh, P- Pittsburgh, is pretty much on the other side. It's like a six-hour drive. So I really have no sense of where Bradford is. Let, let's, let's see. I want to go, though. See, there's a crew over there. They're having fun. Dismantling the house. Branford, PA. Branford, PA? Bradford. I'm sorry. I keep messing that up. Bradford, PA. All right. So let me... Now I have to zoom out. I have to pinch to zoom out to see where this is. Holy crap. That's like, Wow. That's far away. That's like on the northern the northern border. More towards the, the western side. Wow, look at that. It's not actually not too far from Buffalo. Wow. Let's see how long it takes to drive there. 
Ooh, it would take four days to walk. Yeah, five and a half hour drive. Wow. That seems like a good trip, though. A good day trip out to the Zippo area. It's got to be some cool stuff. That's by the Allegheny National Forest. Wow. All right. Note to self. Go there. Go there. It's near uh, Salamanca and Ellicottville, New York. Steamburg. Oh, Jamestown. Yeah, that's actually uh, where my father-in-law uh, grew up in Jamestown. Wow. Erie, Pennsylvania. Wow. See, that could be a cool trip. All right. <coughs> Well, maybe the three weasels could go there. That'd be cool, right? It's a long trip, though. You kind of got to stay overnight, I think. Even though I drove out there once to visit my relatives who were out in uh, near Altoona. Where's Altoona based on this? I'm, like, getting obsessed with... Uh, oh, yeah, it's, like... Uh, it's it's way to the north, but it's sort of, like, Altoona's to the south of uh, Bradford. Interesting. Well, I did go out there once. Um, <coughs> I drove out in the morning, and then I hung out with my Uncle Ralph. There's the tape, uh, yeah, Tape Land, Ralph, right? Th- I released that uh, a year or two ago. It's an amazing tape. And I drove back, but it's kind of too much just for one day. Anyway. All right, we'll go there. I'll go there. <coughs> I want to go to Zippo. How are the reviews for Zippo? Let me see. Zippo. Let's see. 246 miles. Gets five stars. 1,689 reviews. Wow. Look. Oh, there's an image of... Yeah, the, the, there's the giant stuff. Wow. Why did I never think of this? All right. I got to go there. There's the giant knife, the giant Zippo lighter. Oh, cool. All right. This looks amazing. See, all from a, a, a lighter fluid contain- <laughs> container. I only say it said bottled. So, I guess, I don't know where the actual lighter fluid or the the cans come from, but they bottle it there. Wow. Can you see them bottling the lighter fluid? I don't know. I don't know. I think the factory is elsewhere. Uh, but I want to see the actual factory. I don't want to see this. It's kind of like when you when you went out to Hershey, Pennsylvania, another Pennsylvania thing where... Um, I think they originally had a tour of the uh, the actual chocolate factory, if I'm not mistaken. But then they opened Hershey Park, that theme park, and sort of it was sort of like in the parking lot. It was like the World of Chocolate ride. It was sort of a, a Disney ride, like a dark ride, based uh, of how they made the chocolate instead of a factory tour. I think that'd be cool to go over there again too. I wonder if the World of I think I included the World of Chocolate ride in my sci-fi novel. These interdimensional travelers would, like, meet there in the chocolate ride. Yeah. Anyway, let's go back. So the Courier News, right? (laughs) Yes. We saw a story in the newspaper that uh, the Ducray School of the Arts in Plainfield, and I remember it was like a school, an art school that was on Route 22. They said that... um, they were making a movie and they were looking for people to join the special effects crew but you had to be at least I think it was like you had to be at least 13 or 14 years old I think I was only 12 and I think I told my parents just lie tell them I'm 14 and I I went there so you went to these people's house this guy's house like in in Plainfield or something maybe Scotch Plains one of the Fanwood one of those towns over there and in this guy's basement they were doing the special effects for the movie 
See, this movie was Super Kids 2, The Mystery of the Tristand. Um, apparently there was a Super Kids 1 as well. It's about these, these, these kids that had superpowers. And uh, this one involved space. There were, like, spaceships and stuff. And uh, <coughs> they, we were trying to figure out, like, how to do it. Like, uh, they were going to do that thing where you had a projector and then you needed a mirror and you, were, you would angle the light so it would come up on this sort of frosted glass. And the idea was that you could sort of project frame by frame from the movie, and then you could overlay things on it, and then another movie camera take a picture of that, right? So they're like, we need a way to angle the mirror. So I, 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 I invented something using Lego blocks. I showed them my invention. It, it was sort of an angled thing. It was sort of a prototype. I, I, don't, I don't think it was very impressive, but at least I did something. I don't think I did very much, but I remember we... Uh, there was, someone set up like a train a train set um you know like HO gauge train set and uh they had these uh, spaceships little model spaceships on 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 this black rod and then there was like this star field behind it and they were they would film they would set out the track and then they would film the spaceships as they were you know going around on like a a, a model train right and i think the special effects came out pretty well um, I know they had like the big final battle scene was in the Woodbridge Center Mall. Somehow, somehow they uh, they got the mall to agree to. I guess before they opened, maybe like during the summer where it gets light early on. I think they went into they were able to take over the mall and film, or maybe it was at night. I'm not sure. I, I wasn't there. I was only I only did the special effects crew. I wasn't on any other filming of it. But um, um, yeah, they had this final battle, and the main thing was that they wanted to have they wanted to do the laser effects. That's what this back projection thing was. They were going to create like these these uh, laser beams somehow, but it just didn't work out. So they're like, they were sonic disruptors. So you don't see the, uh, <laughs> they, they gave up on the laser beams, you know. Uh, so I remember going there and people were wondering, are you really 14? I'm like, yes, I'm 14, you know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, again, my, my memories are very vague of this whole thing, but. I went to the premiere of the movie in a movie theater somewhere in that area. And uh, the guy that made it, you know, he went up on stage. And there was a woman that was slightly famous that was in it. She, she was an actress on a soap opera or something. She was there. And the guy that made it, he, he, there was this little kid. I think it was sort of that Big Brothers program. This little kid named, like, Gopher or Beaver or something. He was like, he was like the, uh, the sidekick of the guy that made the movie. And I saw the movie and the special effects and everything. And that was it. That's, I, I, the movie is lost to history at this point. I think I found, long ago, I found some kind of record that they showed the movie in a museum in Newark, New Jersey in like 1990 or something. But that's the last reference I found. And I tried to find this guy, Ralph Davies, that made the movie. But again, it, it was impossible. You know, And the other people that were in the movie also were trying to contact the people or to see the movie all without any success there has to be a copy of that movie out there somewhere let me i haven't searched for it in a while let me pause and search maybe someone uploaded it to youtube who knows i'd love to see it again my name would be in the credits i think all right so i searched for mystery of the tristand is is a good search because there's other super kids there's a lot of super kid stuff but yes searching for mystery of the tristand all you get is uh you get a lot of hits for the Overnightscape. But there's one hit in a newspaper. What is this? The Courier News. Look at this. 
Hmm. Can I can I zoom in here or is this? Ugh, it's that newspapers.com, that freaking site that you have to pay to get in. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> so I've become like the big information source on this, and I don't even have that much information. Yeah, I'd love to see the movie again. But yeah, I mean, we didn't par- have any parties or anything. It was just a bunch of nerds hanging out making special effects. But um, at least I did. I was on a special effects crew in the 70s. But anyway, this light and magic, it's really such an inspirational story because, I mean, these guys were not, these guys were already in the industry and they created that computer-controlled camera system where they they had to actually build this computer. And so the idea is they built the models and then, right, the cameras would be computer-controlled. The cameras moved, the models didn't move, right? Because the idea was if the... Right, if the models were moving, the lighting would be really weird, right? So they lit the models exactly how they wanted to, and then the camera moves around it, so the lighting remains consistent. And that's how they did all of the the space scenes with the spaceships in uh, in Star Wars, the first movie from '77. So after what happened was, after Star Wars came out, it was a big success. I guess John Dykstra like started his own special effects company, and was and was doing the special effects for. Battlestar Galactica, the TV show, and George Lucas said that he even allowed them to borrow the equipment from Industrial Light and Magic to film um, Battlestar Galactica. But then Lucas was like, listen, you know, I need a year to write this script for, I guess, what turned out to be Empire Strikes Back. And he decided to move everything up from L.A. to um, to the San Francisco area. And uh, so he he invited only the best of the crew to move up there to uh, to continue working for Industrial Light and Magic. But John Dykstra, I guess, had personal conflicts with George Lucas, and he started his own company and somehow really pissed off George Lucas. Though John Dykstra went on to have a, his own somewhat illustrious career in, in, in movie special effects. He was sort of, he, he was not part of the Industrial Light and Magic. And it seemed kind of like unjust because he was the guy that put it all together. He was the head of Industrial Light and Magic for all of Star Wars, and he was there on the stage accepting the award with the other guys for uh, his Academy Award for special effects. But yeah, they had like a him and George Lucas had a falling out, you know. But <clears throat> yeah, because I mean, the 1970s, right? It was that first generation. So if you were like graduating high school, for example, in 1977. You would have been. You would have just missed that whole Vietnam thing, where young people were being, young men were being dra- drafted into the military to go fight in Vietnam a few years earlier. So this, these were the kids that were just a bit too young to have been involved in that. Also, they weren't involved with the hippie thing, but they, they, they were. This is sort of after all that, you know, uh, and the weird kind of economic situation and Carter and Ford and Nixon and all that in, in the uh, 70s, that young people, and I guess, you know, that people were, you know, partying, drinking, smoking weed, whatever. Yeah, there's a whole scene there, you know. But just that idea that you could be sort of kind of, you know, just being hedonistic and being young and wanting to have fun, but then also being involved in something incredibly innovative and important, you know. 
So I recommend it. I, I mean, I'm I'm at the part where they're already now in in Northern California, working on uh, the next movie. You know, and it was actually really interesting. There's so much Phil Tippett in there. He's the guy that, um, you know, did the uh, stop motion animation. So it was really interesting how they mentioned the um, that chess the the uh, the the, um, the game they play and the Millennium Falcon, right? That sort of animated chessboard with the holographic monsters, right? I guess it, I guess Phil Tippett had a bunch of these monsters, and George Lucas was like, "Hey, can you can you film this?" And they're like, "Yeah." So they they created that, which became one of the most iconic scenes, you know, where uh, you know, let the Wookiee win. You know, R two D two was playing Chewbacca, right? What did Han Solo say? Well, droids don't uh, rip people's arms out of their sockets if they lose. Ah, too, I suggest a different strategy. Let the Wookiee win. <laughs> but then, of course, the um, the tauntaun, the, the the scene with the tauntaun that um, Han Solo was was riding on the back of, and I think Luke was too. Um, and I thought they smelled bad from the outside. You know, he stuffs Luke in, inside the guts to keep him warm. After he escapes from the uh, the Wampa monster, then there were those deleted scenes where the Wampas were like digging through into, into the rebel base. They deleted all that, but like the Wampas were going to invade the rebel base, you know. Yeah, but yeah, Phil Tippett, who um, he went on, he's in there, and he's like, you know, he I guess he realized he he he's like he suffered from depression. He was bipolar, all this other stuff, and but eventually he made that movie Mad God, which just finally was released. Was it last year? That was a great movie. That was like his lifelong project. This bizarre stop-motion animated movie about this weird character descending into this bizarre underworld. I got to see that again. That was a good movie. What was, let, me, let me look that up. Yeah, yeah. It was called Mad God, two words, and it's from uh, 2021, last year. Uh, well, actually, two years ago now. <laughs> Wait a minute. It's 2023 now. It's all very confusing. Was it really 2021? Hmm. Is that one I saw? I don't know. Let me, let me see when I reviewed it. Okay. Yeah, so I saw, I reviewed it on the Overnight Escape 1923, Spectra Force, uh, June t- 23rd, 2022. So uh, less than a year ago. Yeah, okay. I think that's when it came out. I think it was shown in film festivals and stuff in 2021, but it was actually then released. It was showing in New York City, but then I just sort of found it online and watched it, watched it on my computer. I should have gone to see it in the movie theater. It's a great movie. But yeah, you get to know Phil Tippett more. And then also you really get to know George Lucas better. And I also watched a documentary on uh, YouTube. Someone stitched together all these sort of a documentary s- series about the making of The Phantom Menace in 1999, the Star Wars prequel movie. And I've been watching all of them. I'm, I've, I've been watching all three. And I'm on about halfway through uh, Revenge of the Sith from 2005. I remember when I saw that movie, I was I felt very negatively about it. But in those movies have aged very well, the prequels, and I really, <clears throat> you know, um, have a much different perspective on it now. All three of those movies just keep getting better and better the more I watch them, which is good because Star Wars is a difficult fandom, especially what's been going on recently with Star Wars. But of course, the most recent TV show that Disney made. Andor was fantastic, so they kind of redeemed themselves since they've been mismanaging the whole Star Wars thing. But in Light and Magic, you s- I think you see uh, 
Kathleen Kennedy, who's the current head of Lucasfilm. She was there in the early days of, uh, you know, the Star Wars thing. She's been thought to be one of the causes of it being so bad. But anyway, um, yeah, getting to know George Lucas and his very bizarre personality and stuff. And kind of interesting. But yeah, just that whole thing of that world, that milieu of this of the 70s. and I mean, I was there, I was a kid, but, you know, just that whole dream of driving around in your van, smoking pot, and <laughs> hanging out like in a weird park, and just hanging out with your friends, drinking, getting cheap beer and stuff. I don't know. It's a whole vision. It's a whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it does sound like the kind of thing that you could simulate you know, in like in like a virtual reality, you could simulate that very in a very detailed way and get involved in it. Partying in the seventies, <laughs> yeah, man. It sounds like a good good thing to do to create simulations of such things. Indeed. Yeah, I have a memory from, I think it was my senior year in high school. So this would have been like eighty five. There was a class trip that went to this resort in uh, Pennsylvania. I can't remember the name. Was it Foxwood Resort or something like that? Um, and uh, and I remember, you know, I was really not. I was very like weird and immature. And I remember the first night we got there. There was this toga party, you know, and. Uh, I was, like, not in any mental shape to, like, participate in a toga party. So it was in this uh, kind of this weird gymnasium or uh, it was this at the resort. There was, like, a big space. And the my fellow students were having this toga party. But there were these bleachers. And me and the other, like, super nerds and outcasts, like, we just went up in the in the dark bleachers. It was, like, at night. It was real, you know, it was kind of dark. And we just sort of hung out in the bleachers like just sort of watching the more normal students like having fun having a toga party. <laughs> yeah. I was a bit out of it back then. Even more than I am now. Hey. Kind of wild. But anyway, um, I did find, so looking up this movie, the production company was called Grarf Productions. And I guess that guy's name was Ralph R. Da- Davis. Is that his name? Because I was doing some searches here. Yeah. Like in one of my show descriptions, I, I talked about, what did I say? This is back in 2008. Ah, 2008. Oh, interesting. This is like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on a second. Yeah, look at this. Wow, the, this is so wild. It's from the Overnight Scape 717 from July 1st, 2008. And I actually have an image from the the program that I still have somewhere of the super kids. And the Tristan was like this magic crystal that was like the MacGuffin in the movie or something. Uh, I think this is the first time I really talked about it in depth. And what did I write here? Looking for Ralph R. Davis, creator of Super Kids 2. Ralph, if you're out there, please contact Frank. This is what I wrote in the show notes. Wow. Ralph R. Davis. But I never, never found him, never got in touch with him. Um. But using that term, Grarf Productions, um, 
<clears throat> I guess it has Ralph. It was Ralph and something else was combined. I'm not sure. But I found a couple articles from 1980 that are available online. Um, let's see. This is from what pub this is the Times. What kind of publication is this? Hold on. Let me see. It's at page 11. <clears throat> this is the Times, a local newspaper from Scotch Plains and Fanwood. Okay. And there's an article. See, I knew Fanwood would figure into this somehow. <laughs> These obscure towns in New Jersey. Here's an article. Award-winning film Stars Locals debuts at SPFHS. So this is, I suppose, <coughs> this came after the Super Kids movie. I'll read you this article. Richie, a new film from award-winning Graf Productions and featuring youngsters from a dozen local communities, will premiere Monday, June 16th at 8 p.m. at Scotch Plains Fanwood High School, Westfield Road, Scotch Plains. The full... Color feature has been two years in production, said Ralph R. Davis, for Graf Productions at the Ducre School of Arts, Plainfield. Does that, does that place still exist? Let, let, me, let me look this one up. Doing a lot of research today on the show. Let's see, Ducre. Oh, is it still there? Ducre School of Art. It's still, wow, it's still existing. Why did I? It doesn't look like it's on 22, though. Oh, it's, uh, oh, it's right off. Hmm. By Route 28? I thought it was by Route 22. Hold on a second. I'm getting confused now. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of parallel. Anyway, I guess it still exists. <coughs> um, see, maybe that would be a, a place to go to research this. Listen, there's only so many hours in the day. I, I don't know how much research I could do. <coughs> Mike Marino, and he's, he actually contacted me, Mike Marino, trying to find information. Sorry, Mike. I didn't have much information for you. Junior of Scotch Plains Fanwood High School plays the lead role of Richie. This movie I never saw. The cast includes young people from those two communities and from Westfield, Plainfield, North Plainfield, South Plainfield. I guess there's no East Plainfield. Usually when there's these towns in New Jersey, one is missing. There's like, there's no North Orange and there's no East Plainfield. <laughs> I don't know. Greenbrook, Warren, Watchung, Donellan, and Piscataway. The script, written by Westfield High sophomore Adam Beckett and Davis, focuses on the relationship of a young boy, Richie, and his uncle. The subject is child abuse, but with dramatic twist. See, it should have been a dramatic twist, but listen, there's a lot of proofreading issues going on today. I guess proofreaders really, I guess that's like a, a, a career on the decline. Not much proofreading going on these days. The uncle is played by John Thompson of Convent Station. Really, that was, Convent Station was right next to where I went to school, Drew University. Wow. The cast also includes wrestling coaches and their teams from many of the high schools. Virtually all phases of Richie, filming, acting, directing, and production, were carried out by young people under the direction of Davis, who has gained considerable acclaim as a filmmaker. Davis noted that Richie is Grarf's 30th film in the last eight years. It is the first film with a truly social theme, he noted. Others have dealt with comedy, fantasy, mystery, or were documentaries. Because the film is mainly the work of youngsters, Davis believes it has greater significance and sensitivity than one would uh, find in a typical exploration of the theme. Davis said he hopes the film will be used by schools, clubs, and service agencies to combat child abuse as a social handicap. <laughs> what are service agencies? <laughs> child abuse as a social handicap. Wow, that's a strange turn of phrase. 
Tickets are available at $2 each through the DeCray School, 1030 Central Avenue, Plainfield, 07060, or by calling the school on 757-7171. Wouldn't it be calling the school at? That's a weird turn of phrase. Calling the school on 757-7171. See, they didn't really need to use area codes back then because I think back then Jersey just had two area codes, right? 201 for the north and 609 for the south. Now there's a ton more, obviously. But do we even need area codes anymore? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, cell phones are still tied to those old the whole phone number concept. Films from Garf Productions have won awards from the Eastman Kodak Company, WNET Channel 13, the Woodbridge Cultural Arts Commission, and the Plainfield Mayor's Award. One of its films, To Be Found, has been shown on the Bob Keeson Captain Kangaroo Show on network television. Really? Was that a, Bob Keeson? Yeah. Other films include Super Kids, The Thatch Man, and the bicentennial production They Rescued Liberty. Wow. Grarf was founded by Davis and several other young filmmakers who loaned their initials to the name. The organization is unique in that youngsters of all ages participate in every facet of producing the end product. Seems like a pretty heavy movie. Richie is being abused by his uncle. He's like a wrestler, man. But this goes to show you, this is just one example of a somewhat fascinating but completely lost, uh, you know, set of films, right? Only, like, you know, I'm, I'm only talking about it because I was involved in one of them. Imagine how many other things are out there that have just been completely lost to history that otherwise would be cool to preserve, Anyway, let's see. Oh, here's an ad. Scotchwood Pharmacy fights babyflation with low, low prices on all baby products. If you find any of the following sold at lower advertised prices, we will gladly meet those prices. Scotchwood Pharmacy, 44 Martin Avenue, Fanwood, New Jersey. Fanwood was like a hop, hopping place back then. And then there's another article about Richie here from page 7. Another local paper. The Westfield Leader, the leading and most widely circulated weekly newspaper in Union County, New Jersey. Ooh. And, and I want to thank them for putting their archives online without having to pay. Come on. <clears throat> Here is an. Let's see if this article is, is, is written better. Uh, <clears throat> film combines local young talent. Richie, the. A new film from award-winning Graf Productions. Wait, is this the same copy? What the hell? Hold on a second. I think it's. A, I think they just sent out a press release, and they they just. Yeah, I'm just scanning it here. It looks like the same. It's the same. It's actually. It's completely the same writing, in two different newspapers. Okay, so I guess it was a press release. You know, that's easy for the newspaper. Just copy it down, right? Yeah, it's the same exact copy. Yeah, does child abuse as a social handicap? All that. All right, interesting. Um, these movies have to exist somewhere. I don't know. Maybe the school, maybe DeCray School of the Arts has something. I don't know. A lot of lost stuff out there. Well, see, it kind of it's it's easy for stuff to get lost, you know, lost to history. Just look at my own Tapeland project, where I'm just trying to preserve my own material, and it's a it's an enormous process. And in fact. The reason why I was mentioning 2008 is I just released a massive new production in Tapeland Video called The Complete In Ramble uh, from 2008. 
And this is wild. All like basically for a couple of weeks now, I've been working on this, and all weekend I've been like working on this. I finally got it done. It's out. It's on YouTube now. The com- the complete in ramble. So complete spelled C O M P L E A T, and in ramble is one word I N R A M B L E. So um, I was really amazed by this because it's now 15 years ago, and uh, <clears throat> this was. Um, at that time, like, you know, I was involved in the podcast meetups and, you know, it was a time when I was sort of adrift in a way. Um, you know, the overnight scape started off in 2003 and then I really was one of the first wave of podcasters in 2004, went to the podcast expos in California in 2005 and 2006 and was kind of the one in 2006. I was upset because I had though I had been working so hard producing what I thought was a great show, I was like a nobody. I was no one, like my show was not popular at all. And it really bummed me out. And I I kept doing the show, but I stopped doing it daily. I did it daily from uh, 2004 to 2000, right? No, from 2005 to 2006, I did this show daily. Um, And listen, it's it's one of those things where, you know, I can't control what people are going to like or what people are going to be into. But I just felt like upset because I did everything. I felt I was doing everything I could do, and I just I, my show didn't really catch on, you know. So in in two thousand seven, I did that anything but Monday premium podcast, which didn't work out. And later in two thousand seven, I started the Overnightscape Underground, which of course was the most significant thing, and that is the current project. And uh, in two thousand eight, I figured I would. We were starting to hear a lot about online video, internet video. Right, it was like the next phase. A lot of people that were at those, uh, you know, podcast meetups. It actually were you know organized through Meetup dot com. Um, we're talking about video as the next phase. You know, doing video podcasts, and um, so I decided to to create something as I was already doing my show. Um, well, as as I was no, you know what, I had I was not recording too much in New York City, though I was commuting to New York City every day. So I figured I would start taking short videos of myself just wandering around New York City and just show some interesting stuff in New York City. So I called it, uh, you know, it was called In Ramble, Go on a Quick Video Trip. So that was the concept of it. And uh, so I'd be like, hi, I'm Frank, and this is In Ramble. And I would just, it would be a short video showing something interesting I found. And um, I started off, and you can see this on the video, filming on my Trio 680. It was a Palm Trio 680 smartphone the video quality was awful. Uh, so if you watch that video, it's almost, it's really bad. The quality is all pixelated and the sound is crap. Um, and I talk about it. You know, I said I, I, I ordered my uh, a device called Flip Video Ultra because phones, the phone video cameras were not there yet. So I got this little, it was a phone size thing called Flip Video Ultra that could take, uh, you know, higher quality videos at 640 by 480, 30 frames per second. Um, and that's what I used for the rest of the series. And I thought it was really cool. It was really fun. I remember I um, I used a service called Tube Mogul. I think someone at one of those meetups told me about it. YouTube was not the dominant video site at that point. There was like, I think like 12 different video sites so that I uploaded to via Tube Mogul. So on Tube Mogul, you would um, upload once to Tube Mogul 
you know, and then you would configure it, and then they would upload it to all these other sites. You know, they had your login and stuff. So I was uploading to a bunch of different sites, and you know, so I thought you know this could be a cool new project. But as the months of started off right in January 2008, but as the months wore on, as I recall, you know, I was getting no hits, no interest, because I, I guess I, you know, the nature of the content, I wasn't really promoting it, whatever, and generated no interest whatsoever. So I eventually gave up on the show, you know. Um, but what was left is a hundred and. 42 released episodes and then 11 unreleased episodes. Um, and uh, I did release it in audio. There was an audio version I put together in 2009 on the Overnight Escape Underground called the In Ramble Audio, right? Including those unreleased ones. And I've always wanted to collect them. So I collected them I, uh, over the past couple of weeks using the – I had to find my originals. I didn't want to have to download them off YouTube. I don't even have the, that login anymore, I don't think, to, to log in to that account. But I found on one of my old hard drives that was in my closet, um, I have this program called VVV that allows you to search hard drives that aren't connected. You know, it indexes them, and I found the original files. It was a lot of work. And I put it together in a, a video editing program called Shotcut. And uh, I only had the first 143, right? The, that last one... 143 was really cool. It was this thing called the Telectroscope. It was like this brief art project at Brooklyn Bridge Park. It was like this steampunk like tube that came out of the ground and it was supposed to be like this tunnel through the earth and you could see people live in London. It was a whole thing. It was amazing. So that was the last regular one I did. And then uh, later in June I uh, I went to this uh, arts festival on Governor's Island with my friend Peter from the Three Weasels and I filmed another 10 episodes there, and that was it. I never uploaded them. And uh, so what happened was, so that was like June 28th, I think. Interestingly, that the episode I was referring to was a few days later, July 1st of the same year. But um, I, at that point, I had kind of given up on In Ramble, but uh, on um, August 8th, uh, 2008, I uh, decided I, I kind of I brought my camera in with me, the Flip Video Ultra, and I'm like, I want to revive this. I want to see if I can keep going with InRam. We'll give it another shot. And uh, I was at that place. Remember the other day, on the, I, I actually wound up at that place, a little plaza on whatever, 54th Street or 56th Street, one of those streets, um, which is now like a, uh, a sculpture garden. But I, there was a restaurant called Oceana there, so I called it Oceana Plaza. So I sat down by the waterfall there and took out the Flip Video Ultra out of the ba- out of my bag and was about to revive in Ramble and I went to turn it on and the Flip Video Ultra just did not go on. I tried new batteries and it nothing worked, right? And I remember okay, well I guess yeah, when am I going to buy another one and I remember I brought it home, and I was researching it online and doing everything, resetting it. Nothing worked. The thing was completely dead. Last time I used it, it was fine. I, I didn't drop it or anything. I don't know what happened. It just completely died. So I kind of took that as a sign. I'm like, I'm not that excited about this video project anyway. And, but I think because I had um, had a lot of fun just recording on the streets of New York City, that a f- of, like a, the next week I started The Rampler, which was – a show where in audio where I would uh, record a show 
which definitely was influenced by In Ramble, uh, just walking around New York City and recording. And that became the Rampler while I also was doing the Overnightscape at home. And at that point, I felt like, in retrospect, it should have just been the Overnightscape, a continuation of the Overnightscape. But for some reason, I want I, this show had its own identity. That led to this sequence of events uh, where the Rampler sort of took on a life of its own. That guy pretending to be Andy Kaufman on Twitter sort of um, found my show and I would talk about him, give him attention. So he, he kept, you know, he was trying to spread this information that Andy Kaufman was still alive and that whole thing leading to the Andy Kaufman press conference that, uh, was it November? That then led me to do my radio show on WFMU in 2009. Then they canceled my show, even though they asked me to come on, then they canceled my show. That's around the time the Overnight Escape Underground as a group channel started. So if I look back at that whole thing, it was like this sequence of events from In Ramble to The Rampler to WFMU, and then the Overnight Escape Underground was sort of born out of all that chaos. Um, anyway, so it's really interesting to look back on this. So it's over five hours long. It's on YouTube, and uh, it's, really, it's really quite remarkable watching them one after the other. Though, again, most of them were already on YouTube, um, they're, again, the hits on them, a few of them have a couple hundred views. Some of them have tens of views. It's definitely a little obscure corner of uh, YouTube. But um, watching them in sequence in this new way, it is really quite remarkable. Um, and I felt like, you know, let me just play a little bit of one of them. You know, just go to a random section. You know, and I also released the audio of this whole thing as well. Um, Let's see. Let me find a good... If you go on to YouTube, there's, there's a complete index, right? Uh, I, had, I had to take out the numbers because I, I was running up against the... Um, ooh. There's a little typo in there. But anyway, um, running up against the character limit of 5,000 characters. But let's see. Here, like Times Square at night. Pleasure. Two hours in. Hi, I'm Frank, and this is In Ramble. Let's check out some Times Square. So, and it's just so amazing because, like, the Virgin Megastore was still there. Look, this is, like, historic. 15 years ago, New York City. And the video quality is pretty good. You know, it took me a while. I I had to save out the video so many times because I, I, you know... Because the first few were really low quality, that set the quality for the video. But eventually I figured it all out. And I also was able to find the, the vector original of the logo in Ramble Go in a quick video trip. And I put it on the lower right. I actually researched. I, I went on YouTube TV, looked at all the TV stations and how they put their logo on the lower right, kind of like in white but with uh, 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 the, the opacity was set. I forget what I did, 75 or 80% opacity. And it just looks it looks looks cool that in Ramble logo in the corner all the time, you know. But you know, mostly in New York City, but some stuff in New Jersey and stuff. And uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty pretty remarkable uh, document of the time and the preservation of the project. Um, watching it, I kind of felt bad because I'm like, should I have kept doing this? But then I remembered that you know, it's like 
you need some kind of motivation to do it. And the fact that I was just getting crickets from uh, all the video sites. Because, you know, I, I was thinking about it in terms of uh, that Marshall McLuhan hot media versus cool, cool media. It just sort of seems like video is a hotter medium than radio. I'm not sure if that's how he defined it, but um, it was just sort of like doing it without any reaction or without any anyone really caring about it was kind of, you know, not fun. And if it, but, but again, looking back on it, it did seem that it was kind of part of a sequence of events that led to something much greater, the Overnightscape Underground. Um, so yeah, check, check this out. I mean, it's really, really great. And especially those, the figment videos towards the end, there's this cool freak out that happened. Uh, I call it Fort freak out. And I always remember this, like it was at this fort, this fort and, uh, the figment festival. It's like this circular, this circular courtyard. Right. And me and Peter had this little car we were pedaling around. We rented this little pedal car. And in this circular courtyard, there's speakers all around the circle. And it detected where you were and created these sounds. So me and Pete were like drive. We're just driving our car around. And these weird sounds. It's a very cool moment. Any good video of this? Yeah. Keep on driving. It'll keep making different noises. Awesome. Anyway. But then it ends very abruptly in another fort, me and Peter driving in very abruptly. So I just put a little card at the end that said, thanks for watching. Okay. 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 So we'll beware. There's a performance coming. He's afraid we're... We could go up there, maybe. <laughs> there was some sort of... That may be pushing There was some sort of performance troupe coming there. Why, you're saying it's just me that can't... Uh, I don't know. We could try it. You want to try? 15 years sure? ago. I don't know. Nah, what do you, what do you say? Well, it would be fun to go down, but then we might lose control and destroy it's it. It's a cool place to go. Have, wait, I know it's changed a lot over the years. The early days of Governor's Island were very cool. What if someone's there? It was a previous Coast Guard base that New York City took over. No! They have evidence now! Ow! That... No, this is fine. They made it. This is fine. See? <laughs> what are we doing? Don't watch out for that performance. <laughs> Thanks for watching the complete in ramble. Watch out for that performance. <laughs> anyway, five hours, almost five hours, nine minutes, and 48 seconds for the whole video. Yeah, and I, uh, for the... No, what is that crap? An ad. But for the... Um, the show title for the title art I did uh, where is it I took a frame which was uh, this giant inflatable robot in Times Square very mysterious so I thought that was a cool image to, to you know I have put the complete in ramble I actually found the font I, don't, I can't remember the font that of the main in ramble logo but the little go on a quick video trip was definitely a future of old so I used that to typeset the complete um and I did find out about that weird inflatable robot in Times Square. What was really cool, I did record a lot of very ephemeral things, like like the New York City waterfalls, which is an art project, and that telectroscope, and a lot of the, the Glenlivet City links, like this cool like in, <laughs> indoor golf course based on Glenlivet scotch. Um, but, I, yeah, I found out about what this was. So I, I did some research on some of the stuff in here. 
Where is that? Where's my research? I need my research. Where did I, where did I put it? Ah, here we go. The Pepsi Gift Monster. That, that, that's what it was called. <laughs> Pepsi Gift Monster. It's, 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 it's a very obscure thing that Pepsi did. I'm trying to see. So this website here, CG Society, Steve Cass. I'm trying to see if I can zoom into this thing. It's hard to read, but it's a guy named Steve Cass. Uh, yeah. PepsiStuff.com. So th there was a there is a, a conceptual image of this like giant robot, which had all these gifts on it. And then there there is a photo of the final inflatable robot there. Let's see what it says on the right up here. If we can zoom in. Pepsi Gift Monster. Pepsi took the unusual step of kicking off its Pepsi Stuff Super Bowl campaign Monday, almost two weeks before the big game by sending a 60-foot inflatable robot monster rampaging around New York City before coming to rest in Times Square. The alien life form was created by Steve Cass and is intended to represent the scope of the Pepsi Stuff music giveaway program that will launch with the commercial during the Super Bowl on February 3rd. On February 3rd. This is ve it's very low res. I'm having a hard time reading this. Pepsi's fifth bowl-related giveaway is also reportedly its largest. The company expects to hand out about 1.25 million songs from some 270,000 artists. The songs come without digital rights management restrictions via Amazon's new Amazon MP3 service, so they can be played and shared without difficulty. Remember that whole that whole thing where the digital rights management? <laughs> that, oh, God, what a, how annoying. DRM. So annoying. It's not such a big thing anymore. I mean, it still exists, but... The New York Pepsi Stuff Monster campaign began with street teams laying down the monster's tracks as it trudged menacingly through high-traffic areas such as Penn Station, leaving behind large robot footprints and piles of giveaway merchandise. What? I didn't get any giveaways. What the hell? This debris was then handled by cleanup crews in overalls and hard hats, and, and they cleaned it up by giving it away, says Patrick West, vice president for experimental marketing at Zoom Media and Marketing, which executed the promotion. We had security and police tape, but frankly, I've never seen New Yorkers line up more peacefully. The giveaways, both at the street sites and around the stuffed monster's resting place in Times Square, I didn't get anything! Included CDs, DVDs, hats, shirts, and belt buckles. Can you imagine a Pepsi belt buckle? That'd be great. But the largest portion of the merchandise handed out were envelopes containing access codes for music downloads at the PepsiStuff.com website. www.pepsistuff.com. The website goes live in eight days. Oh, I wonder if we can use the Wayback Machine to look at that website. Let's see. On archive.org. Was it Pepsi Stuff? Pepsi Stuff. Pepsi Pepsi stuff with no hyphen or anything. Okay, let's try this out here. PepsiStuff.com. Doing a lot of research today. We're finding out a lot of stuff today on the show. It's always good to do research. Let's go back to 2008. 
in, wow, hmm, the first one's in May? Is it January 31st? <coughs> that might be it. Right, the Super Bowl was in January back then, right? Yeah. Uh, e. Nothing. How about the May version? Let's see, May 29th, 2008. Let's see if they were able to get a res resolve the website here. No? No? Well, because some sites could block block that uh, that kind of um, thing, right? Maybe, so maybe the site doesn't exist anymore. Uh, let's see. Anything? No. No. I, th I, I think they Pepsi completely blocked it from being preserved. The hell? Come on. I want to see it. With this, that's kind of cool. The idea they had like this giant robot, like they were leaving robot tracks and prizes and giving it away to people. How did I miss this? I was there. I was there, damn it, but I missed it. I didn't get any prizes. I should play the section where, where I encounter the robot creature. All right, that's not going to work. Let me see here. Where's my video? Do, do, do. One moment. All right, here we go. Times Square. Hi, I'm Frank, and this is In Ramble. Is my hair messed up? It's, I think it's because of uh, static electricity. My hair is messed up. But we're here in the middle of Times Square, so I'll just give you a view of, of the whole thing. We're right in the center here. Here we go. Check this out. Oh, you, you can hear that, that another Times kind of Square. sound art. Remember that sound art in the middle of Times Square? I don't know if they still have that. Oh, the Virgin Megastar. How I missed that place. And there's the robot in the, the distance. The gift monster. Nice. With, with no more prizes available. An ancient clock. We have this Kodak thingy. And this very bright See, this is kind of, this is cool historic information. Times Square here, in the past. More, more things and, of course, more neon. The old Coke Everything. sign there. Beautiful. You may hear this noise. Yeah, yeah. That the noise is actually a work of art. It was installed a long time ago, and it's uh, it's just meant to be this mysterious noise. Can you hear it? So uh, hold on. Let me see if that's still. Let me do some research. See if that's still there. It's called Times Square, often referred to as the Hum or the Times Square Hum. is a permanent sound art installation created by Max Newhouse or Neuhaus in Times Square. Originally installed in 1977, it was removed in 92 and reinstalled in 2002. It is maintained by the Dia Art Foundation, who consider it one of the 11 location and sites they manage. So I guess it's, it's, it's still there. All right. I, when, I'm going in on Thursday, so I'm going to note to self the hum. Let me just write this down. Times Square, the hum. So I can remember next episode hopefully we'll we'll go there and see it all right let's continue with my uh in ramble people are dancing over here they're shooting their own video in times square you know people dancing but yeah um obviously in ramble and the name the rampler so this is definitely was a precursor to the rampler <laughs> Then you have these like red tubey things. It was like in rambling we trust something like that. There's some uh, some pigeons. So there you go, the world of Times Square. 
Well, look, the Led Zeppelin album Mothership was uh, being advertised on the side of the Virgin Megastore. Is that still out? Like that Led Zeppelin? Let me see if it's in Apple Music. Remember, that was one of the uh, the best of Led Zeppelin. No, that's Maxwell. All right. <laughs> no. Led Zeppelin. All right, hold on a second here. Let's see what we can find. Kind of a synchronicity, right? Because I was talking about Led Zeppelin earlier. Dazed and confused. Okay. Led Zeppelin was another one that um, was not on Apple, not on streaming uh, for a while. Yeah, Mothership here. Yeah. See, they have Dazed and Confused on Mothership. Jimmy Page's hand curated selection of the best of Led Zeppelin. Been dazed and confused for so long, it's not true. I should look at the lyrics. Hold on. Dazed and confused for so long, it's not true. Wanted a woman, never bargained for you. Sweet little baby, say what you will. Tongue wag much when I send you the bill. Okay. All right. Anyway, let's go back. Back and let's listen to see me discovering the ro- the monster. Uh, beautiful, of course. What the hell is that? It's like a giant thing down there. Wait a second. Wait a second. It's like a, there's a giant like <laughs> there's a giant thing down there. I, I, wait, now we got to see what the giant thing is. I saw you You see it? It's like a I don't know what this is. You see that? It's like a giant, like, is it like a giant astronaut kind of thing? Or, I don't know. All right, hold on, hold on. Crazy. Whoa. It's interesting because um, Nate from Wisconsin was talking about how he might want to do like a talk show on, on Twitch, do like a video thing. And he asked me, like, did I ever think of doing like video for the Overnightscape? And, you know, I said, yes, I have dabbled in that from time to time, but, you know, I felt the audio medium was better for me than any doing anything video. Remember, I did, like, video reviews. Oh, I should probably, should probably, yeah. I had to write that down, too. The, the, uh, a tape land of those, like, the video reviews I did. Yeah. See, I want to preserve this stuff. Anyway, let's continue. <laughs> Toys R Us. Right, hold on. We'll get to it. Hold on a second. All the stuff that's gone now from Times Square. That is a very strange thing. We're going to look at it right now. Yeah, there it is. Cool. Oh, it's on a, is it really 60 feet tall, crazy. though? I don't know. It looks like more like 30 feet tall. It's like a robot? What is it? Oh, it's like a Pepsi thing. Okay. Maybe that's... I don't, that doesn't really seem like six stories tall. Yeah, I mean, right. you know. Yeah, and it's sort of covered with a montage of prizes, right? Graphics of prizes. But there's no, like, there's, they're not, there's no one giving anything out. Let's take a look at you know it. what I mean? It's a giant. Like Harris shopping bags. And uh, 
I don't know what it is. It's a giant inflatable robot. Good night. Hi, I'm Frank, and this. Oh, look, I'm on the bus. So. West said the thinking behind starting the Pepsi Stuff campaign before the Super Bowl was that the promotion is much larger than at any single event. We wanted to convey that this campaign isn't contained by a Super Bowl commercial, he said. Also, the intent was to start some buzz in the pregame period. Pepsi announced on January 14th that it was partnering with Amazon MP3 for the promotion. The company will also send 4 billion specially marked Pepsi containers to retail stores. Consumers can use these containers to collect points and redeem them for music. Last night, the Stuff Monster headed off to Glendale, Arizona, where it will form part of the Super Bowl Week entertainment setup around the University of Phoenix Stadium from now until the game time, until game time. An animated version of the Pepsi Stuff Monster will appear in a Pepsi TV spot launching sometime after the Super Bowl. In the commercial, the monster will show up anywhere people are drinking Pepsi to hand out free music and gear. During the big game, Pepsi will rely on a Justin Timberlake TV spot to promote its stuff giveaway. <laughs> what? That's it. That's like the information. Now, what about the... Let me see. Is there like... Is that commercial preserved somewhere? The Pepsi stuff monster? All right, well, here's the one with Justin Timberlake. I don't know if the monster's going to be in it. It's, it's not really that funny. It's funny. No, it's childish and immature. <laughs> Justin Timberlake flew, is flying down the street. Flying around, it's so, like someone like drinking Pepsi through a straw is somehow affecting him because I guess he does music. Is that the gimmick? I have no memory of this commercial. Did I watch this Super Bowl? Every sip gets you closer to Justin Timberlake MP3s. Hey, hey to you. HD TVs. TV hit him in the head. Millions of songs from Amazon MP3 and more. Sign up at PepsiStuff.com. Yeah, that's obviously before streaming became the dominant form. People listening to music online. Huh. So, yeah, I don't, the, the monster one, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I can't find it. Anyway, that's kind of interesting, though, right? That I ran into this uh, gift monster. In other news, um, you know, one of my favorite things is to go on the Internet Archive and browse all of the magazines that are being uploaded. So these, uh, it's, it's the magazine rack, and there's this contribution index, all these magazines from the entire history of magazines being uploaded to the Internet Archive. And it's just so cool to read all these random magazines uh, from every country, from all periods of history. Um, so I, I ran into this one called Fantasy Empire, uh, collector's edition two from 1983, right? And it has uh, 
Season guides for The Prisoner, Sapphire and Steel, Blake 7, and Fireball XL5. So I'm like, Sapphire and Steel? Do I know that? Uh, you know, certainly that time period in British science fiction, Doctor Who, of course, the Tom Baker years from the late 70s, early 80s, just a classic time period. And then, of course, Blake 7, a show that... Um, I'd love to rewatch it. I remember watching the whole thing. I had to download it off some weird website many, many years ago. It's an incredible show from the same time period, late 70s, early 80s. It's like a space opera show. Just amazing. There's something about the production quality and the tone of the shows from Britain around that time that's just very special. A lot of times, you know, kind of, you know, low budget, but very well written and very uh, sincerely produced you know it's uh you know they're trying to make something really good with the, what limited resources they have so i'm like sapphire and steel like do i do i know what that is is it i'm like what is this and i started to look i looked at the section so it has joanna lumley and david mccallum and uh i'm like yeah i'd, I'd never heard of this before it says uh all irregularities will be handled by the forces controlling each dimension. Transuranic heavy elements will not be used where there is life. Medium atomic weights are available. Gold, lead, copper, jet, diamond, radium, sapphire, silver, and steel. Sapphire and steel have been assigned. So I'm like, what? In fact, let's, let's, let's hear the, uh, the opening of sapphire and steel because it's uh, rather bizarre. So, like, I feel like, how have I not heard of this, you know? There's something very strange. It feels like one of those peps, the past editing paranoia. So I started watching the first few episodes. This is, here it is. Like a road in space. All irregularities will be handled by the forces controlling each dimension. Transuranic heavy elements may not be used where there is life. Medium atomic weights are available. Gold, lead, copper, jet, diamond, radium, sapphire, silver and steel. Sapphire and steel have been assigned. I mean that is so distinctive. I I I would have remembered that. I never encountered that before. As far as I can recall, I never ever encountered that before. Um here's the uh, a synopsis of what it's about. A special force of interdimensional operatives protect the universe from evil forces trying to gain a foothold by disrupting the timeline. The strange energy beings are assigned to cases when and where needed and materialize on Earth as humans, each with specialist abilities to ascertain and solve the problems. The mysteries encountered by Sapphire Steel and their colleagues include people trapped in photographs, ghosts lost in time, and an retro dinner party. Another typo. Shouldn't it be a retro dinner party, not an, an retro dinner party? There's a lot of typos today. So I started watching the first few episodes. I found it on one of those channels like uh, Tubi, I think I was watching it on. 
I think I have a plugin installed that blocks the commercials, thankfully. Um, but anyway, it starts off with like uh, this uh, these, this family in this house, this boy and girl and their parents, and the parents wind up disappearing, and Sapphire and Steel show up. It's really kind of creepy. It's like weird, like horror kind of stuff. And there's like being some other dimensions and all these weird, all these clocks. Like they, like they can tell something happening because the clocks stop working. And but this is a this is a series that has a long, right? It, it went on for a while. I think it had like four seasons, right? Yeah, thirty four episodes, uh, seventy nine to eighty two. And uh, wow, I'm just super impressed with this. And I just had no idea that this existed. You learn something new every day. So this is this is the new show I'm going to be obsessing on. See, I don't watch any of the the current shows. I'm I'm finding these old old obscure shows to watch. Oh, I I, I had been watching the Max Headroom TV series, but I kind of it's not as good as I thought it would be. But I got to get back to that as well. That's another sort of similar one. But I do I do enjoy digging back and finding these things. Now, uh, Joanna Lumley, of course, I know her mo- most from. Absolutely Fabulous, where she played Patsy. And in fact, I mentioned her uh, on an episode recently talking about how she worked at a fashion magazine, her her character Patsy from Absolutely Fabulous. But she went into the office so, so rarely she couldn't even find her office. That's how I feel when I go into the office now. Wasn't she in uh, James Bond as well? I thought she was a Bond girl. Uh, am I wrong? Let me search here. Oh, and she, oh, she was on on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That where uh, that guy George Lazenby he played Bond for one one episode. I also started watching that, where he breaks the fourth wall in the beginning. The other fellow never had these problems. <laughs> yes, and David McCallum, of course. Uh, I, I knew that he played Ilya Kuryagin on uh, The Man from Uncle, though I never really watched Man from Uncle that much. That's sort of the main thing I know him from, right? But anyway, this is quite a show, Sapphire and Steel, and I'm definitely going to be checking more of this out. Anyway, another news I have here: the fermented carrot juice. Yeah, there's this uh, a chain of places. It's currently called Happy Vegans. It used to be called like Kafta or something like that, Kafta Wrap. It's a Turkish restaurant where they have this kind of like um, paste-like material. It's like sort of fake meat, and they make wraps out of it. It's really good. But I remember <coughs> a couple times I went there, they have this uh, fermented carrot juice, which I guess is a delicacy in Turkey. So we were ordering from there uh, f- for lunch over the weekend, and I'm like, oh, I hope they have the carrot juice. And they did. So we have here uh, Pamir Salgam fermented carrot juice. And it's, I think, f- fermented from black carrots. And uh, and it does taste like, you know, uh, over the years there's been a few brands of pickle juice you could get. It does taste like pickle juice. And uh, what does it say here? International Taste Institute. <coughs> it won a prize in 2020 in Brussels, Belgium. Um, I'm, this is this is a, an award-winning product, of course. Contains oh, purple carrots, not black carrots. Refined water. What's refined water? 
filtered, I'm assuming. Purple carrots, turnip, salt, boiled and pounded wheat, yeast, and garlic. Wow. This is quite, it's very salty too. It's a very salty drink. There's a lot of sodium in there. Not too much. But. <coughs> Let's try this out here. It's so good. I love this fermented carrot juice. Why is it like some of the greatest foods, they're from other countries, you know? And they're not, they're not really popular in America. I don't know. Let's try this out here. Yes, it, it's like, it is like a dark purple color. <coughs> Amazing. It does taste like that, that <coughs> pickle juice. It's so good. It's like addictive. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. I think I reviewed this before on the show, but it's so good. I got to review it again. Mm. <coughs> remember, there was that a few other pickle juices. I used to get them at, remember, Health Nuts on Second Avenue? <coughs> oh, wow. It's powerful stuff, very powerful flavor. I need to find like a, a cheaper like source for this stuff. They just don't have it in the supermarkets. It's not popular in America. Ah, that's so good. So if you ever get a chance, check out fermented carrot juice. Hey, it's a bit later on now. And uh, you may have noticed today's episode is called Balbi Type SVG. And uh, this is uh, something I've been meaning to do for quite a while now. And uh, this is my font project from 1995, long time ago now, that I am finally releasing to the public. Now, as you know, I did mention, um, I talked about the Balbi Type 26 uh, back on, uh, um, wow, about a year ago. Wow, the Overnightscape 1894, the Balbi Type 26, and I just... You saw the um, the art the the art of the twenty six fonts I created, um, and you know I wanted to preserve it in some way. Um, I didn't feel like going and using a font program to create make these into actual fonts because, again, there's only so many hours in the day. So I figured I would uh, just uh, collect all of the fonts into an SVG file, right, which is a um, a graphic format that is an open format. And, uh, you know, so all the fonts are on here, and there'll be a link to the SVG file. And you can use these fonts in a, a, a graphic design program. You could use Adobe Illustrator or what's that, what's that freeware one? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a program called Ink, Inkscape, Inkscape, and uh, you definitely could use that for free uh, to use these fonts. And, of course, if someone wants to turn them into fonts, I put a Creative Commons license on there. Um, anyway, yeah, so th the history of this is the name, uh, my grandfather, Frank Nora, uh, was from a small town in Italy called uh, Donia or Donia de Longoron, because there's another Donia that's not near Longoron. But um, in the town, most of the people's last name was Nora, right? There were so many Noras that they added... Uh, an extra last name to help identify the different families, and my grandfather's was Balbi. So he was a Nora Balbi. It was sort of unofficial, but there was like the Balbi 
side of the Nora clan, right? And um, so I'd always been aware of that. Again, it's not an official name. It's not on birth certificates or anything, but it was just used in the town. And one of his brothers, I believe his name was Jizwe, um, he, he would write, he was writing like political stuff, you know, during the rise of Mussolini and stuff. So he used a pen name, uh, Gino Balbi. Uh, so G-I from Jizwe and N-O from Nora and then Balbi. So his name was Gino Balbi was the name of the, as a writer of political stuff. So that's why I adopted Balbi type as the name of my font company. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I felt like, um, especially when I was younger, the things that I liked, I want to do my own version of it. So I liked comic books. So I created my own comic books with this character called Zope, even though I, I don't have any real artistic ability. And I love fonts. That's one of my great loves in life. So I figured I'd make my own fonts. Though perhaps, you know, I'm, that's not one of my, uh, you know, making fonts is not my strong suit. I did it anyway. So there's a lot of stuff, even like writing a science fiction novel. I did that, even though perhaps it's not my strong suit. So there's something interesting about these creative productions that is just sort of forced through, even though I sort of lacked uh, perhaps the, um, you know, not necessarily the talent, but the I didn't really apply myself. And I, and I know I've talked about this phenomenon where, you know, when someone feels that they should be able to do something without putting in the hard work to learn how to do it, that's where problems come about, right? But <coughs> not necessarily problems, but it's basically... I think that's when I was talking about the concept of like really what, like what does it mean to be a loser as someone who wants something without putting in the hard work to do it and then gets upset when they, when it, when they don't uh, get the results that they like. That's a whole other discussion. But anyway, um, but in the course of this, this thing where, where you're um, <clears throat> trying to do something that you might not be completely suited to do, but you're just doing it anyway because you want to do it, some interesting things can, can happen. And I do think there's some very cool fonts in here. Um, so this is all from 95. And if we look at this, so what I did is I very carefully prepared the SVG so that each letter is um, <clears throat> a compound path. So you could just grab it and move it, and it, it'll, it'll work on top of anything. It took a long time for me to do that. This was a pretty fairly hefty project to put together. Not that much, but it took me many hours to put this together. So at the top it says Balbi type SVG typeset in uh, Shrikeway, which was there's a, there's three extra like combined fonts on the bottom. I typeset that in black with a red outline, and there's a yellow background. So that's my standard yellow EDCD21, and the red is ED2223. That's the uh, hex values. Those are the same values I'm using on my current uh, you know book book cover and branding for the Overnight Skip Underground. Anyway, I wrote here, if I can find it here, Balbi Type SVG is a collection of fonts I created in 1995. I never turned them into real font files, so I figured making an SVG was a way to let people play around with the fonts. Frank Edward Nora, January 20th, 2023. Balbi Type SVG license, Creative Commons Attribution 4.0. Uh, attribution by Frank Edward Nora. More info at onsug.com. Attribu attribution only required for font or graphic resource releases. So the idea is that I just I don't want people to feel that they can't use these. So you only have to do attribution if you're releasing it as a font or a graphic arts resource, right? Otherwise, you don't have to do it. So you can play around with these fonts. So there's essentially there's 26 fonts, and then they're combined in a couple different ways. 
So we have all the fonts here, set one, two, and three. Set one is from January 4th, 1995, and set two and three are from January 17th, 95. Then there is that graphic with all the fonts that I that was the on the show art last year. And then there's there's three fonts where I combined two of the fonts. So Shrikeway combines Shrike and Way. Antarctica combines Antarctica as the capital letters and Declaration as a lowercase. And then whenever has um, was it Kaiser as the uppercase and what, what what's the lowercase? Yesterday, yeah. I think I was moving towards something else, but this is just what I had in my in my files from back then. I mean, that's a long time ago now. What 19, 1995? Right, this is two years shy of being thirty years ago. So it's twenty eight years ago. Wow, that's a long time ago. So <coughs> it's interesting the names of the fonts. So like. The first one is Lager. I think I drew this one by hand. And in parentheses it says Beer because I think that was the first name I had for it. Then there's Pleaser. That used to be called Caffeine. That's an interesting one based on, I think, some sort of a graphic template, these sort of angular letters. Clobber was definitely hand. I drew this by hand, I think, in notebooks, and I scanned it in. Pluto, previously called Death. That also was based on sort of a grid of tiles that I got the letters from. Declaration. I think I created this in Illustrator. It's like a lowercase italic. Disaster, just a bunch of weird, differently styled letters. Endgame, this was an interesting one. This was based on kind of a template, and the letter B, uh, that I I, I doubled it up, and that was the first Bluff Cosm logo. Then Antarctica, or used to be called Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S, and uh, that's sort of based on a a, a bitmap or a grid, angled and with an effect applied and there's hacksaw right kind of an outline font idiot i like that one nitrogen jingo which used to be called oblivion and this is another one i think i hand drawn slumber warm way wyoming xenon yesterday uh shrike shrike there was uh, some notes so this was basically started off as a bunch of um unicase fonts or unctual fonts that I applied all these effects to. Kaiser, which I think is my favorite one, is these wild letters that each of them has like this circle with a circle inside of it, on it, and that's what I typeset the Overnightscape in. I probably named that after Kaiser Soze and uh, The Usual Suspects. Then there's Diane that was named after Diane from Twin Peaks. Darkle, Conifer, Wrath, that used to be called Dagony, that must have been Dagny Taggart, the character from Atlas Shrugged, because that, that was around the time that I was like, uh, that was my Ayn Rand phase, where I, I read Atlas Shrugged and was kind of drawn into the whole Ayn Rand's philosophy. And uh, it didn't take me more than a few years to realize that was that was not a good thing. I'm glad I got into it, though, because now I, I know I should never get into it. It's a whole other topic, but the whole Ayn Rand philosophy sounds good on the surface, but it's not good. That's a whole other topic, though. Uh, Southbound, Carnage, and then one of each of the fonts in a font called Orgy. Right? It's like all the fonts are having a big orgy. <laughs> and then in the lower right, just another rendition of the Bobby Type 26 with that Orgy font. Um, anyway, so that's it. So you can grab this from this post. It's also going to be in the, the vault, which is in the Overnight Escape Underground archive. I'm going to add that to the vault, and uh, 
I hope you enjoy it. Maybe you could do some typesetting with uh, the Balby Type SVG. I hope you do. Let me know if you make something with it. But yeah, it's pretty wild. Like you know, as I mentioned, like um, even just my own like personal stuff from the past that's fallen into oblivion. Uh, you know, I'm trying to uh, preserve it, and I do think you know there's a quality to those fonts that's worth preserving. Um, thinking back to that time period, I mean, I, you know, I think I would have been, uh, I mean, if my goal was to have some sort of s success or monetary success with something creative, around that time I was doing like 20 different projects at once. You know, I mean, if it probably would have been better to focus on one thing, you know. Well, even if they say hindsight is twenty twenty, I don't, I don't know if that was really my goal back then. I think it was... Uh, I was more just sort of like amusing myself in a way. Um, it was sort of delusional fantasies of, you know, creating some sort of huge entertainment company with fonts and video games and science fiction novels and comic strips. And I mean, it, yeah, it was way too much for one person, you know, and I should, you know. I mean, it was fun at the time, but in retrospect, I guess it's all good because it led up to the Overnightscape Underground, which is focused on being one thing, which is good. Some self-analysis here, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do like the idea of, um, you know, trying something out and then what, what, I what is resulting from something that, rather than trying to do it the traditional way, gaining an education, paying your dues, and then finally producing something, just go ahead and do it, right? There's something to be said for that because there's a certain uh, quality to the um, there's a quality to the content that's created that way that's different than it would have been if, if someone had uh, you know, been well versed in it, right? It's not always good, it also has a lot of flaws but there's something about the spontaneity and sort of just the raw um, desire to create something that has its own quality. I don't know what you call that. It's, it seems like something that there should be a name for because I think a lot of the great art that's produced are the, just people that are of, the, of that age, you know, your early to mid-20s where you, you have a connection to the muse. You have a connection. There's a kind of a creative spark that you have that doesn't last. It, it, you know, as I, as I quote often the idea that around age 25 something changes in your brain and your brain is finally fully developed I think a simpler explanation is that um, <clears throat> as you get older and more familiar with various arts right, you wind up second guessing yourself more and more um, as to you know when you want to do something you know, it's hard to like, you know, you don't just barrel ahead. You always have all of these considerations and, oh, did someone else do this or is this cliched or whatever. But in that young, just just do it kind of mindset, you don't care about that stuff. You're not second guessing yourself. You're just doing it. And again, often the results are laughably bad, <laughs> cringy, but there's there's a kind of a spark an energy in those kind of productions that um, is rather unique. So, 
I would say that's what those fonts are all about. The, the fonts were sort of done in that kind of uh, philosophy because looking at those fonts now, there's a lot of them that I probably would have, you know, second-guessed and not used, this and that. But anyway, that's sort of just like frozen in time, the Volby type SVG. SVG means Scalable Vector Graphics. It almost sounds like DreamWorks SKG or something like that, right? Yeah. No, it is not that. On to other topics. I remembered another museum up in that area where the Zippo is. Corning Museum of Glass. I went there once when I was a kid. Upstate New York. And I've always wanted to go back. Now, looking at the map here, I thought they were close together, but they're almost two hours apart, an hour 48 minutes apart. But it would be on the way, right? The... Uh, I could go to Corning and then go to Zippo. Oh, wow, this looks so cool. Yeah, it's a cool glass museum. There's got to be other stuff up there, too, that's cool. All right, I'm, I'm sketching out, like, a, a, a trip. i got to go there. I really want to go to these places. Glass and Zippo lighters. Oh, it sounds so cool. Oh, look at this. Yeah. It was a different fermented carrot juice. D Dogane was the other one. Dogane, right? This is a different brand. Sal uh, Salgam, whatever. Interesting. Very interesting. A lot of different kind of fermented carrot juices out there. Here's the uh, trailer for Dazed and Confused from 1993. There's that year again, 93. That keeps coming up, too, on the show. It's like a key year in history. This country is founded by people who were in the aliens, man. George Washington, man, he was in a cult. And the cult was in the aliens, man. You didn't know that? No. Oh, man, they were way into that type of stuff, man. Before MTV. Before safe sex. And way before Beavis and Butthead. You're getting it was the last day of school. Uh, Miss Crawford, I was thinking that maybe you and I can get together over the summer. I mean, it'll be legal. I'm not gonna... It was the first day of summer vacation. Do you guys know anything about a party here tonight? No, sir. It was a time they will never forget. There's a new fiesta in the making as we speak. I thought he was cute. Well, that's just you thought he was cute? Do you realize when he graduated, we were like three years old? If only they could remember it. Okay. So you're not going to go to law school? What do you want to do then? I want to dance. You going to be quarterback next year? Oh, no, I might not even play. of a serious attitude adjustment, young man. Super dominant male in a 50s greaser uniform. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> the 50s were boring. The 60s rock. The 70s, oh my God, they obviously suck. Dazed and confused. See it with a bud. Behind every good man, there's a woman. And that woman was Martha Washington, man. And every day George would come home, she'd have a big, fat bowl waiting for him, man, when he'd come to the door, man. She was a hip, a hip, hip lady, man. Yes. Directed by Richard Linklater. 
Last Day of School of May 1976. Yes. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Maybe I should watch it. But there's only so many hours in the day. How many things are I supposed to watch? I have to watch Sapphire and Steel. I have to watch uh, Light and Magic. I have to watch so many things. So many things. In other news, I've uh, been getting back into Richie Mahjong. And, uh, you know, I took a long break from it, but really love the game. I'm not good at it, but Ma- uh, Richie Mahjong, I think, is um, it's a game that's not easy to understand because um, most people, when they think of Mahjong, are thinking of that uh, solitaire game that there's so many different versions of where you're trying to clear, there's like a pattern, like a grid, a pattern of these Mahjong tiles, and you've got to match them to clear them. There's a million different versions. It early version was called Shanghai, I think from Electronic Arts or Activision, one of those companies. But there's a million different versions now. That is not the Mahjong I'm talking about. It, does, it uses the same Mahjong tiles, but it's very different. And then there is a, a tradition of American Mahjong that people associate with like old Jewish women playing Mahjong, right? Now that's the American Mahjong, which is similar, but quite a different game than Ricci. There's also Chinese Mahjong, um, and the, all these games are related, right? The puzzle game is by itself. It's separate. There's another game called Shisen, Shisen Show, similar to the uh, solitaire game uh, where you play on a grid. I like that game, but again, that's not. Regular Mahjong is sort of like, uh, like gin rummy on steroids. That's how people have described it. You're using tiles instead of cards. But you have a hand, you're drawing a tile, you're discarding a tile, and you're trying to build the best hand to go out. So very similar to rummy, gin rummy, what have you. Um, set building games, right? Richi Mahjong, it's R-I-I-C-H-I, is the, the Japanese version where uh, in order to go out, you need uh, a yaku. So... You're, you're building up, uh, t- you know, sets of tiles in your hand, like a set of three or a, uh, a straight, like a two, three, four of a certain suit. <coughs> um, but in Ricci, you need a yaku. There needs to be something special about your hand in order for you to go out, right? Um, you can't just go willy-nilly and just do whatever you want. Um, but Ricci is, 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 a, is a play where your hand is completely closed. That is, you can steal other tiles and then place them face up, and then you're, you have an open hand. If you have an open hand, you need a yaku. But Ricci is where you declare Ricci, right? And then you're waiting for like, one, like, like a, a particular tile, or sometimes multiple tiles, and then Ricci itself is a yaku, right? Um, I do not have all the yaku memorized. You only have to know a few. Just to, so I play the game at a very low level. But it's a <coughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, basically, right? Just wait till you can declare Ricci. And the thing is, I've never played this game in real life. I don't have the tiles. I don't have a mahjong set. There's so much stuff you'd need to know to play it live. Like when can you declare Ricci? I kind of know, but the computer does it for you. So that's one thing. Just wait for Ricci, declare Ricci, then wait and see if you get your tile before someone else does. Um, and then there's the uh, All Simples is a very basic one 
where your hand can be open, closed, whatever, as long as you have all simples, which is no terminals, ones and nines are terminals, no dragons, no winds, etc. Um, the Japanese one doesn't have the Ricci doesn't have like the flowers or the Joker or anything or the, or the seasons. Um, yeah, it's just the winds, north, south, east, and west, the dragons, and then the uh, the dots, the the uh, the bamboos and the, uh, the characters. Yeah. And uh, some very simple ones are if you if you get any of the three dragons, then you're, that's that's a yaku. And if you get three of the winds, right? Usually you're playing east or south as overall. So if you're in east, you can do the east winds. You know, three in a row of the east winds or four. If you're in south, you can do south, and then you yourself have a direction. You're north, south, east, or west. So you can also do. Three of the winds of your direction is also a yaku. Um, so as long as you know that, you can play. But, you know, I realize that I need to really, I mean, it's one of those games, you know, they use that phrase, a minute to learn, a lifetime to master. Ricci is a couple hours to learn and then a lifetime to master because I know that, you know, I, I would be at the lowest level of skill on the game. Um, <coughs> but... I remember seeing, especially in uh, MAME, the multi-arcade machine emulator, in Japan there were endless um, Mahjong video games, usually involving women getting undressed as you play the game, like dirty Mahjong games. And I never knew how to play those games, right? And then I got, what did I get, some sort of a game on the the Nintendo Switch. It was like 50 different games, and one of them was Richie Mahjong. That's when I started learning it. And uh, very quickly you'll find there's a bunch of different online places to play. But there's one called Mahjong Soul, which is you can get it as an app or as a website, which is very well done. And I think that's a major way of playing. It's free. Or you can pay money, like most of these things. And also, you know, you have to become like an, an anime girl. There's boys as well, anime male anime characters, but you got to pay to get those. There's only like two basic female characters that are free. Um, but that's a really great way to play. And you're playing online. And, you know, I feel like at my level, I, I play in the bronze room. And I do all right. I mean, I, I think I I think I won the other day. I think so. Or came in second. I came in second the other day. Um, it's a pretty intense game. You know, as you're playing, you look at your hand and draw a tile, discard a tile, and you're trying to sort of shape your hand. Then you have to choose if you're going to steal other people's tiles and make your hand open if you feel that's going to work for you. For example, sometimes I have like uh, maybe two two white dragons and I'm like, there's no white dragons on the in the discards. I'm like, listen, I'm going to go nuts. I'm going to do whatever I want because I know I'm going to get that that other white dragon. Someone's going to discard it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, and then you're just trying to sort of, you know, like you're trying to discard tiles that aren't really helping you. You want to keep the tiles that are connected. It's a wild game. Um, one version, so that's all playing online against other people. There's one great version I know at least is, I think it's on iOS and Android. It's called Kimono Mahjong. This is an offline single-player version where you're playing against, uh, you know, AIs. And um, here all the characters are furries, you know, like animal people. 
I don't know why regular humans can't be represented in this game, but it's either anime girls or furries. But um, it's, a, it's a great way of playing offline. It costs a few bucks. And you can stop the game. You can start the game. It's, you, know, you, you can just play a few minutes here and there. And it's great for practicing as well. There was, I think the reason I got in, back into it the other day is because there was a, uh, another <coughs> version there was a new app that also had Mahjong that I played. and Yeah. And, but anyway, I got back into it. And I really do recommend it. I know it's it's confusing because of all the different kinds of Mahjong out there. The, the Solitaire, the American version, all these other things. But Richie Mahjong is very different and very special. Sort of like, I know some people have said like Richie Mahjong is kind of like Texas Hold'em versus some of the other mahjongs that are just kind of like, you know, draw poker, you know. It, it's it's much more complicated. But it's much more satisfying too. Uh there's there's a lot of rules. I would love to play it in person sometime. You can get sets for, you know, under $100, I think. Um you got to order, you know, mostly order them from Japan. I think there's one company, Yellow Mountain Imports that sells them on Amazon in the US, but the tiles are thick. They're almost like cubes, right? They're not like they're not like dominoes. The American mahjongs are like dominoes. They're, they're very flat. But the uh, Japanese mahjong is, is they're very cubic, you know. So you you put them in front of you. Um, but the process of setting up a game by hand, shuffling the tiles and building these walls, breaking the walls, and very complicated. So that you actually can buy automated mahjong tables, where the tiles get scrambled up inside the table, and then the table itself has a mechanism that sorts them out into these walls, and the walls then shoot up onto the play field. Those cost thousands of dollars, though. But if you're going to be playing seriously, that eliminates all the setup time, which I think would be considerable. Um, but anyway, I would love to play in real life, but I'd also need other people to play with. I know there's a New York Mahjong group that... As of a couple years ago, I joined up their Discord, and they do they do meet in Bryant Park in New York City. But I found out about it during the pandemic. Uh, who knows? Maybe uh, I'll see if they're still doing it. I'll, you know, when the weather is nicer, try to play in person. I would be very intimidated playing in person because I, I, you know, there's there's a lot more you need to keep track of that the computer keeps track of for you. Um, but. Maybe with more practice, I'd be able to do it. But anyway, I think it's a game that really... It's a wonderful, fantastic game. There's so many computer versions. Mahjong Soul is sort of a no-brainer. It's just a great a great way to play. And um, once you get a few basics down, you can play on sort of my level and uh, and then just move on from there. Obviously, you're, you're just looking... You, you would, you're going to play the same way, but you're going to have a much deeper view of your hand and what you can accomplish with your hand. And also, I think, keeping track of the discards, which is kind of a drag, but, you know, obviously seeing what the discards are, you know what's left. Um, Also knowing that the wall is never fully used, so there's some tiles that are not going to be played in in any given round because they're still in the wall. Anyway, I recommend it. It's it's a very fun pastime to play on your telephone. Also from Japan, I've been uh, I've been uh, I, I I've been researching this uh, the phenomenon of AKB48. 
this is quite a phenomenon. I think I discovered it. There was a uh, a K-pop channel because you know I've been into K-pop to some extent, mostly uh, the band Luna, which has now pretty much imploded. No one's quite sure, but it seems Luna's finished, which is very sad. Because to me, they were the greatest K-pop group ever, and uh, I hope they can somehow salvage the situation. But um, they, uh, yeah, as usual, the companies mistreat the performers. They're in these horrible contracts, and now the performers have sued, and they fired one of the performers, and now there were 12 members. One of them got kicked out. Chu got kicked out. She had sued them. Um, for this horrible contract where instead of making money, these, the members of this, this group, they have millions of fans all around the world and they generate millions of dollars in revenue, yet they all owe the company hundreds of thousands of dollars and have been paid nothing. They haven't gotten a single paycheck in years, right, because they have to pay, they have to pay for all the expenses 50-50 with the company, but the company get 70% of the revenue so they can never pay it off and there'll be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt so the remaining 11 members nine of them sued four of them got out of their contract the other five are like in limbo and the other two uh, God only knows anyway um, J-pop is a bit a bit harder to get into it's it's because K-pop has been very much looking outside of um, outside of Korea, especially to the West, it kind of, especially Luna was much more popular outside of Korea than in Korea. But in Japan, ten, can tend to be rather insular in a lot of ways. And um, I had not, never even heard of AKB48. Um, there's some video popped up on my channel from a K-pop video producer, you know, doing K-pop videos about K-pop. Apparently she had gotten, I think her name was Ploopy or something. She she got so many requests to do a uh, deep dive into AKB48 that she did it. And I watched the video and it was just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. So I had just seen that one video and then I found a post on Reddit where someone had collected this mass amounts of documentaries about AKB48 that have been, you know, that are sort of available in this sort of underground, you know, you know, people trading videos and stuff with English subtitles. There's like dozens of documentaries about AKB48. And uh, so I started watching a few of them. And the early years, so it started in 2005. And some of these documentaries I'm watching are like from 2010. So I'm, I'm seeing it from that early perspective. But um, it kind of reminds me of this movie called Synecdoche, New York, with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I know, I know the guy died, but he, I find him the most unpleasant actor ever. Anyway, uh, Synecdoche, New York, was about this guy who had this project. It was sort of an art project about himself, and it just grew and grew and grew into this bizarre, dreamlike, unmanageable thing. And that's sort of AK, what happened with AKB48. So I'll, I'll just tell you off the top of my head what I sort of gleaned from my dipping my toe into this world. And I would say that this is something that uh, I think pretty much I'm just interested in the meta sense of finding out about it. I don't think I'm going to become a fan 
or get to know the individual members. But the uh, and it's just interesting to compare it to K-pop because it is such a different vibe. Uh, the J-pop vibe. <coughs> There's also C-pop, which is in China. That's a whole other thing. So the origins of AKB48 remind me in some ways of the Industrial Light and Magic documentary um, trying to create something great with limited resources. So the um, the creator of this whole thing is uh, Yas- Yasushi Akimoto. And I think he's like a so- he was like a songwriter at the time. And somewhere around 2005 he was having a he was having dinner with some friends and they were talking about these groups these j-pop groups they're like singing groups the idols they call them and uh and how you know you really you you see them on tv you may see them on a concert occasionally but he was wondering what would happen if you had a j-pop group that that performed in a theater every night j-pop idols that you could meet Right, not so distant, but but uh, but that you could meet. So he had this unique concept to create a group that would perform at a theater every single night. So different from the sort of distant superstars, as they are usually, these are stars that you could <coughs> go any night of the week and see them perform <coughs> and meet them. Right. So he started looking for a place to build his theater. And uh, this section of Tokyo called Akihabara that apparently at the time was very famous for its maid maid cafes. Um, I'm not sure if if that's still going on, but the idea that it was a a cafe with attractive young women dressed up as French maids that would serve you your drinks and stuff. Just another bizarre Japanese thing. But there was a department store called Don Quixote, and I think that Ruben and Clara on one of their trips to Japan uh, were, were, men- were at a Don Quixote department store. But anyway, this was in Ak- Akihabara, and uh, the, the, the top floor of the building was empty of, of the Don Quixote um, department store. So this guy, uh, Akimoto, he rented the space, even though the only area they could put the theater, there were these two huge columns in the room that would s- somewhat block the stage. But then that became a very famous thing. So he built this area. So it was like uh, you walk in and there's like a ticket booth and then there's a cafe area where you can sit around, get some drinks and eat. And then there's sort of an entrance to the actual theater. And it was very small. You can only see like 250 people. There's a stage. And uh, so he set about hiring. uh, It's all all female group hiring girls for the uh, to be in this group called AKB for Akihabara. 48, the idea was that um, something like that there would be multiple teams. Uh, there'd be 48 members, the idea. Like, I guess four teams of 12 or something like that. Or was it three teams of 16? I think it was three teams of 16 originally. Right? That's 48. So that, right, the different teams could perform on different days. Right? You can't have someone performing every single day. Plus, a lot of these a lot of the members were were in, were in school. They were like all in high school, basically. So he hired the members, and they started. They launched their theater. It was a totally different concept, called AKB48. 
Um, and in the early days, there was no interest. They were playing to empty theaters. There may have been two people in there. They felt the whole thing was a big failure. It was a big mistake. And it was apparently very difficult in the early days. And because Akihabara was associated with sort of sexual exploitation of young women, um, people like like the girls, they said, like in school, their their classmates would make fun of them and accuse them of being in some sort of like sex-based show or something. And apparently it was like this big disaster at first. Um, so this documentary I was watching from 2010 was looking back on that to five years later they had AKB48 had become this enormous uh, like they become these national idols had become this massive thing like one of the biggest groups in Japan right and then from 2010 onwards they became absolutely massive and it grew into almost like this massive almost like a cult kind of thing um, so I'm the, I'll just tell you my limited understanding of it um, it started off there were so many members they had to choose one to be in the center to be the focus of attention and at first uh, you know Akimoto right that's his name Asushi Akimoto chose the center but then the fans complained so they started having these uh, these events where fans would vote and then they would go into this huge arena and like announce the results of the voting <coughs> and uh, so people just became obsessed with individual members and uh, and then they had these massive like it would be in like a stadium AKB48 because they, they grew from the original 48 members they started creating um, outposts all over Japan and then all over Asia to the point that there were like five or six hundred members at 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 one point, um, so they would like fill stadiums with these rock paper scissor c- contests, right? When you bought one of their CDs, you got a ticket to go to a handshake event where you could actually shake hands with the idols, like for three seconds each. Or if you bought a better ticket, you could shake hands with them for ten seconds, but you could actually touch the idols. Again, this is absolutely bizarre, but it became so massive. Um, they would fill stadiums and um, there was such competition among the girls that there was an incident where there was a lot of controversies like there was an incident where one of the members was like like like, uh, accosted on her way home and was like assaulted and then they sort of found out some of the girls had hired these, these thugs to like beat up this girl almost like Nancy Kerrigan remember that whole thing Tanya Harding Jeff Galoo, remember the Tanya Harding where she hired someone to beat up her, one of her rivals in figure skating. Um, another uh, instance, it's like, but these handshake events are massive. It's like this huge stadium-sized place, thousands of people waiting in line for hours just to shake the hands of some of the AKB48 members. One guy uh, got in with a handsaw and started like sawing and and attacking the the member the, the the members of the group with a saw. Right and really injured them. Of course, was arrested. Turns out he was not a fan of the group, but was like, like obsessed with them because he he had lost his job and he thought the idols didn't deserve to make a lot of money, so he was jealous of them. And he had to buy CDs to get the tickets to uh, <laughs> to go to the event. And oh my god, it was like insane. 
they said that people, the more tickets you had, the more idols you could meet. So people would buy, some people bought thousands of CDs just to get the tickets. And then they would dump them. And one person was arrested for dumping like 500 CDs like on a mountain in Japan just to get rid of them. But they got caught and they were arrested because they, and this happens in K-pop as well, where fans of a group will buy thousands of copies of a CD just to pump up their numbers in the, in like the, uh, the top 10, the, you know, the top 20 charts, whatever, then just dump it on the side of the road. Because in Korea, the CDs contain uh, photo cards, collectible photo cards, but the CDs themselves are worthless, you know. Um, just endless controversies and just uh, there's also like a no dating policy and that's in K-pop as well. And members that have been found dating are, are shamed and the, uh, oh, and the member that was uh, assaulted had to apologize for being assaulted. <laughs> One of the members who uh, was caught just having a date with a guy, she shaved her head and was crying and apologizing on TV. It just endless controversies and bizarre things, this massive thing. And this one guy, Akimoto, is in the middle of, he created everything, and they have hundreds of songs that they perform. Like there's a, um, there's this major event where the fans vote on the top 100 songs because there's mo- hundreds and hundreds of songs and then they'll perform all 100 songs over the course of like three days it's like this massive countdown in these massive arenas <coughs> and uh, every song is written by Akimoto every single song he's a songwriter so all the songs they perform are only written by this guy it's, ama- it's like this amazing thing um, and uh, <coughs> you know they also you know, like in the Japanese culture, they're, you know, kind of exploiting the women. But there were a lot of very young members of the group. And they used to do like, like bikini, bikini videos and stuff. And a lot of the girls were way too young. So apparently they've been addressing that, but it's, you know, they're overtly sort of sexualizing them. You know, I guess just to make them popular, but then, oh, you're not allowed to date, you know. So I have just scratched the surface of this. It's just like, it's bizarre that it's this huge thing. And then they have outposts, you know, like India, Indonesia, China. I don't think they're in Korea because K-pop is sort of on a higher level than J-pop in some ways. But anyway, I just started scratching the surface. There's dozens of documentaries. So you can just, like, you don't have to watch, you can just watch these documentaries and it's just fascinating alien kind of uh, pop culture it's really wild (coughs) um so yeah i've been i've been kind of enjoying that it's uh wild but i the thing that's similar light magic is those early days just creating a theater on the eighth floor of a department store to put these shows on there's something about that i find really really fascinating um it's a really cool idea but apparently they've been on a bit of a decline. Um, their whole concept of meeting them, that all, of course, got set aside because of the pandemic. And uh, so at least this one uh, YouTube personality was saying that she felt that uh, AKB48 is sort of on the downswing now. But I didn't know anything about it. You know, again, it's a very insular kind of, uh, you know, Japanese thing. You know, something from Japan worldwide mario sonic the hedgehog the video game stuff is the biggest and the anime stuff you know is is also super big 
but yeah their music is very insular like um one of the big topics of the 2010 documentary was akb48 winning kind of the equivalent of the grammy for record of the year but in japan very prestigious award and they really wanted to win it because they felt people still were looking at them as being illegitimate like this crappy group that just just like a flash in the pan and then they won the award but i saw the list you know it was in japanese but i saw on the list one of one of the illustrious groups that won it was mr children <laughs> i always keep hearing about there's a a rock group called mr children that's a very big in japan i thought that's a funny name <coughs> anyway fascinating stuff endless documentaries Okay, it's later on now, back on the porch, a fresh cigar. See, I was thinking a lot about this idea of sort of the humble locations for entertainment production, doing what you can with limited resources. There's a certain romance to that. There's a certain, what would you call it though? What is it? It's a narrative, it's a storyline, it's a trope, it's a an archetype I mean I've definitely experienced it you know at times you know um, as I mentioned I was at WFMU briefly dipped my toe in their station culture didn't it didn't uh, it didn't take though I don't think it was a good match and their offices were not were nice offices but it's a building in Jersey City and you know, it was a bit, you know, it had some character. I remember I did I, I did some recording in the stairwell, you know. Fifteen minutes ago in the stairwell, one of my one of my greatest radio concepts ever. On broadcast radio. Um then there was my college radio station, um, WMNJ in the basement of a dorm. That was a really messed up place. And but it, what I'm trying to get at is what is the uh, relationship between the, the humble location, the people involved, and then the entertainment being produced, right? In all of these things, it sort of feels like, <coughs> uh, though at the time you feel that having a humble location, having a crappy location, a place is not ideal. You would rather have a much nicer location that somehow the experience you have in a humble location, working together to create something after the fact seems to be much more meaningful, right? But it's not really something that you can, it's one of these things where it's incredibly valuable, but is it something that you can, that you can create artificially, right? I don't know, because it, it just sort of seems like it just happens. People want to create something and they have limited resources, so you wind up in a basement and a crappy office or something like that. And then this sort of magic happens, right? But can you but is it but when you say it just happens, do things really just happen? I th- there's gotta be a meaning or there's a, gotta be an a structure behind the scenes creating these things, right? I know it just seems like, oh, it's just people that don't really have a lot of money, so they have to find wherever they can find to do this stuff but the fact that it seems so meaningful after the fact there's something about it that's 
I don't know. I'm really, I'm really struggling to grasp if it's just accidental or if it's something that perhaps at a, at a more meta level is, is on purpose. Hmm. And I also had that kind of a crappy little office for my Anything But Monday magazine. That I don't necessarily look back on as fondly <laughs> to some degree, but I mean, it was kind of a, you know, you know, me and Mad Mike, we've definitely had our conflicts over the years. And, uh, but it was definitely sort of a humble location. And I know on the, on the exit ramp we were talking about a company called Ion Storm, which was set up by a guy who was one of the guys that created, I think Dan Romero may, may have been his name. He's one of the guys that created the original Doom video game. And uh, when he went off to create his own company, you know, they had been in sort of the situation where they were creating their games and I'm assuming a humble type of location. But because Doom was such a monster hit, he was able to get a lot of investment and decided to spend that money creating what he thought were the ultimate offices. It was in the penthouse of a skyscraper in Dallas, Texas. It was super extravagant. They had marble inlaid floors with their logo, Ion Storm, in the floor, skylights, and it was just like this sort of over-the-top, unnecessary uh, extravagance, wasting money. They even said that as the sunlight was streaming in from the elegant skylights, the actual computer game programmers couldn't even see their screens. The sun was shining on their screens. In the end, I think that the company failed. The, the one game they released was called Daikatana. It was a big bomb. There may have been a few other games, but... So it just goes to show, people are not looking to have this uh, humble experience. They want to have it all. They want to have extravagant, super amazing offices. They don't want to have crappy offices. But somehow a certain kind of magic happens in the crappy place. Yeah, and, the, and the, my college radio station, right... One of the uh, guys that was on the station back in the 60s, I think, became rich and paid to build a whole new wing of the student center, including a a completely rebuilt, state-of-the-art, amazing radio studio that I went to along with Mad Mike back in 2012 to record ABM 2012. But it couldn't help but sort of yearn for the old crappy radio studio, which we did look into the window it was still there in the dorm. We like, I think we shined a flashlight in there to look at it. It was still existent, but it was closed because this new place. Not that any students were interested in doing radio shows in 2012. God only knows how much worse things have gotten in, in another 13 years. Anyway. Um, but yeah, this idea fascinates me because it does seem so meaningful. There's something about that a team of people in a humble location with a big dream trying to make it all happen. There's just something, there's something there. It's some sort of universal archetype or something. Um. (coughs) I mean, I can perceive it in my mind. I don't know if it's really quite coming across just talking about it. Um, I actually had, I had in 
a story that I never actually wrote, but the story for Night Station, one of the many variations of Night Station. This is the strip mall version of Night Station. Kind of had a similar vibe. It was, uh, this was just, this would just be a piece of fiction where a group of characters very inspired by the Walt Disney dark rides, you know, like the Haunted Mansion, Pirate of the Caribbean, Horizons, etc., decide they want to create their own ride. And something I've always wondered, why don't we have rides like that all over the place, in shopping malls, in strip malls, or just freestanding, right? Why can't you have that? There's some ec- scale, some sort of economic issue where somehow the cost associated with it and the amount of money you can make from it sort of only makes sense with a heavily trafficked place where, like a theme park where people are going there to be amused, you know. I guess you could say if you built something like that in a shopping mall or something, you wouldn't really get repeat customers unless you built in some aspect to it that would encourage repeat visits. So the story was the dream of these people was to uh, create a dark ride that would be in like a shopping mall. Right, and that that would encourage people to have repeat visits. But they started off small, and they couldn't afford to go into a shopping mall, so they went into a strip mall, found a cheap strip mall location, and figured out how they could do it. There was nowhere near enough space to build little vehicles on tracks, rooms for them to go through, so they figured they would um, take the idea of a train ride. This is, you know, night station. And uh, create inside. You go inside, and it's sort of like it's meant to be like a very minimal train station, right? There's a few seats. There's a there's a departure board, and there's a, a, a ticket booth, right? Kind of sounds similar to AKB 48s uh, setup. Uh, and then there's there's the platform entrance. So in the next room, there is essentially uh, the interior of a train car that's been built, right? So you go in, and it's sort of like you enter the train car, and there's seats on either side, and uh, there's a video s- video screen on the front and the back, and then out windows on the sides. In this case, there would be no um, videos on the sides, but there would be, right, a wall that um, there would be lighting effects. There would be like theatrical smoke and lights. The lights would would go on and off in sequence, making it seem like you're moving in the train, right? And the video screen, maybe just in the front to start and not in the back. Maybe you walk in from the back. um, Kind of shows you where you're going. And so they could create on video kind of like, you know, where the train is going and it's sort of like a subwoofer to kind of rumble things and the lights... So in a very in a very limited space, right, and a lower budget, able to create kind of a, a, a ride like that. And then I think another feature would be on the other end of the train, you, you can get out, and then there'd be a, a place, like a destination place to go, like another room that's themed in some way as, as where you went to, right? So I really like that story because it kind of, touches on this same subject. I don't even know what to call this topic or what to call this concept, but the kind of ingenuity that, again, it's sort of like the font thing I was talking about, that where 
without all of what you really need, pure inspiration goes through to create something and it's sort of imbued with a kind of magic, right? A certain quality, right? Of spontaneity, naive creativity. I know I'm not really describing this properly, but I just want to sort of understand this phenomenon. I suppose ultimately you could say these all sort of involve a group of people that are working towards a goal and the experience they have, the experiencing together the difficulties produces a kind of experience that's valuable, right? It's <laughs> this is maddeningly hard to sort of pin down what I'm even talking about. But, but it kind of relates to the sort of emptiness of virtual realities in terms of there's some smaller games where you can buy a house games like Tower Unite or Four Kings Casino and the houses all seem to be drawn from the aspirational dreams of what would be your dream house you know if you were a multimillionaire and beachside properties beautiful like everything is sort of like high end that sort of makes it feel kind of empty right somehow the more humble locations have a certain different kind of meaning. Um, there was that science fiction novel, I never can remember the name of it. I think it was by William Gibson, where eventually their goal was to sort of recreate Kowloon Walled City, which was this sort of another example of this thing, which was uh, my very limited understanding of what happened. There was a patch of land between Hong Kong and then China at the time, Hong Kong was still uh, in, was still British uh, administered. It was sort of a no man's land, and they built this enormous, like ever growing, like structure, this apartment complex that that was like lawless, like no one was in control. They packed a mass amount of housing in this small area, and in the story, it was a it was a cyberpunk novel. They uh, they wanted to recreate it in the real world, you know but sort of aspiring towards a, a more of a humble, cramped, real kind of thing as opposed to sort of the dream of the lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know. I mean, uh, I just thought made a connection, which is that the creative art or the creative end product, right? If you if you view a project over the course of time, right? And one theory I've had is that the creative process requires some kind of fuel as some kind of energy, right? And the idea is that you might actually have to draw the energy from the environment around you, right? And that when you think of a beautiful, pristine place, right, it's full of that kind of energy because and the more ener of that type of energy that's there, the neater, the cleaner, the more pristine a place like a house, a room, an office will look completely pristine and beautiful and neat 
right, when it's full of this energy. But the idea is that the creative process sucks this energy out of an environment so that often you'll find people that are creative, their environment, their office, their rooms, etc., are complete shambles, right? Everything's messy, everything's piled up, it's a big mess because that's how a room will manifest a lack of this energy which is characteristic of a creative person inhabiting the room and sucking all that energy out of the room and making it messy, crummy, and humble because they've used that energy to create a work of art, a, a, a creative product, right? So the idea may be that um, a larger project, right, when you look at the draining of this energy across time, actually, it's not just in the moment. You could actually be sucking energy out of the past in that location as well. So a team creating a creative work in a place right the place might almost naturally become disheveled even before the project starts because that team in the future is sucking the energy out of that location from the future right so the idea of pairing a team of creative people creating something with kind of a crummy location is almost the natural result of a pure creative process that has drained dry a location of its energy. And that, (coughs) like with Ion Storm, the pristine, beautiful uh, location is sort of the opposite of that, right? To force that, right, is is to create an imbalance and to, uh, you know, ruin the the, uh, feeding tubes of the creative process in a way, (laughs) right? That to conceive of and to implement a high-end, beautiful place, right, is sort of, yeah, depriving the creative process of the fuel it needs. Yeah, I'm not sure. This is just a bunch of theories I'm throwing out there that trying to figure out why there's this romance of the crummy location to create stuff. Yeah, it might be that such a you know such a state of affairs in the location is related to the meta level of you know how how creativity really happens i'm not sure about this whole theory i just think it's kind of interesting so how would that then right how would that process relate to a metaverse, a virtual world, a computer place. Would it matter, right? Would would the would the look and feel of the location in a computer world matter, right? If you created an like, for example, if you were to have, as people are starting to do now, but I think will happen more in the future. I know the metaverse has has hit a bit of a roadblock of late, but when it does happen. The environment can be anything. Sort of money is no object, really. You can create whatever you want. You can create an office, a room, a building. It can be kind of anything, right? Would it matter if it, let's say, if it does matter in the real world, if locations are being drained of energy and becoming disheveled as a natural part of the creative process, 
how would that relate to a creative team working in a virtual environment, right? Would it not matter at all? So you could have a super luxurious, beautiful beachside property where they can create stuff and it wouldn't matter because it's virtual or would it matter? Would you deliberately create a disheveled space? What, you know, what is that lack of energy manifest? Uh, how does that relate to a virtual space? Right. I don't know the answer. How would you even deal with that? I don't know the answer, but I think it's an interesting question. You know, because I've, I've, I've often thought about um, our project here, the Overnightscape Underground. You know, right now we have a website, but I believe in the future, again, once we get past this roadblock of the metaverse, um, a three-dimensional computer world will be the new norm, and the, f the flat page-based internet will not, you know, the World Wide Web will become, will, will be de-emphasized, right? So if you go to, you know, Amazon.com, right now it's a series of flat pages, but in the metaverse, it will be a giant department store right, that you walk through to see your products and then you, you grab it and then you mail it to yourself in the real world after you pay for it, right? That's the idea. And I, and I know there's been this weird feeling. It feels like almost an artificial resistance to the metaverse. Um, but I do think we'll get past it. I do think it's going to happen. So then instead of having a website like onsug.com, we'll have a radio station as a building, which would be only natural, right? And it would be interesting to have a place where we can all get together and have some kind of, you know, shared space uh, to do shows. I know it's not how we do it now. Each of us is recording the shows in our own time and in our, in our own space. But I think that it feels like it's only natural and almost inevitable to, to reach that point of having a virtual location. But then we're faced with the, the, the idea of it can be anything. Right? The design can be anything. You know, Would you want to pattern it after an actual radio station in a building with rooms or... It could be out in outer space, or it could be on the beach, or it could be anything. You know, it, it's like I, I, I think that that's a big question in terms of now that it could be anything, what do you make it? Do you try and make it as similar as possible to a real-world location, or the sky's the limit and fantasy and everything else, things floating around, whatever, you know? What would an overnightscape underground <coughs> virtual radio station really be like? You know, would my inclination to make it more of a humble space to sort of sort of in reference to the, everything I've been talking about, would that be contrived? Would that be artificial? Would that be unnecessary? What should it be like? I don't know the answer, but again, I think these are good questions. I don't know. Look, in some ways, I may be overcomplicating something that doesn't need to be so complicated. But then again, it is kind of a complicated question. 
we did have something similar to this in the original night station uh, from 2011 and 2012 doing these long broadcast segments from an imaginary radio station right there was nothing depicted it was just we talked about oh we're here in the imaginary radio station and there's like an arcade downstairs and I think Chad had something like he went down to the boiler room in the imaginary radio station. And there was something about having a shared space, even if it was imaginary, that was felt substantial and it felt important in some ways. And it's something I really haven't continued to explore because I do feel at some point, is it, is it necessary? Is it excessive? Is it something we don't need? But it does feel like we're... Again, it feels inevitable that we're going to be facing that question um, when the switch over to the metaverse. To have a shared space, to get together in our in our avatars, you know, to uh, you know do some not all of the you know broadcasting or the recordings, or whatever, but some of them I think would be cool to do in sort of a shared space, a shared virtual space. I think with the exit ramp we see a bare sort of bare bones version of that where we see each other on the video screens of the zoom call but right it does feel like all of these ideas are pointing towards um, a computerized virtual space right which certainly there's been opportunities to do that in different ways in recent years but it feels like like uh at this point where you'd have to use some custom software or create something within someone else's system or something, it feels like a bit of a reach. But once everyone is going into the metaverse, it feel it will feel like something that we have to create a virtual space, have to create a station. And then what will it be like? What will, the, you know, does it really even matter? You build a few rooms, you build, you know, like a sort of a fake radio studio in virtual, you, you you build the tables and the microphones out of polygons or whatever, you know. <coughs> does it really matter what it is? But I think it does. I, there's some... Oh, it's just bothering me because I just... It just feels like an idea. It seems like... It feels like there's something... There's an obvious answer to all this that I'm just not getting. You know. The location itself being important... And that possibly in the real world, the process itself drains the location of energy and makes it disheveled. How does that apply to the a virtual world? Oh, I just, oh, it's frustrating because I, I feel like there's something there, but I just can't grasp it. I can't get at it. Well, let's just say, so if, okay. I think I think one of the keys here is that the theory that rooms in a building, for example, manifest their appearance based on how much of this energy is in them. Now, I know you could say that 
every object in a room was put there by a person and right it's just a room with more energy will just it the people will just happen to put things in the right place and will just happen to clean it more and right in a room without with with a lack of that energy it will wind up being kind of messed up messy disheveled dirty etc in terms of how it manifests but we're talking about it, it feels kind of counterintuitive that a level of energy of a certain type of energy in a room is going to cause a certain kind of appearance to manifest and though it is we would think of it as the result of thousands or tens of thousands of actions by human beings and cats in some cases kind of can mess things up too but you know what i mean knocking things off tables and stuff but it's a a manifestation of a sort of a basically there's a level of energy that exists and then the appearance is manifest based on that energy that almost sounds like how things work in a virtual universe right there is the basic geometries that then are rendered by uh, various 3d rendering engines in what then what is seen in a virtual world or a video game etc so there's yeah there's a similarity there there's basic information basic structures that are then manifest through a system yeah that may have been what i was mm, trying to get at and i know we can always turn this around to say we're already in a computer universe and this idea of energies and manifestations and creativities this is all part of the computer program that we're living in in which case what would be the the purpose of that that song I also referenced that song in the exit ramp by, by Jack White from the White Stripes the little room when you're in your little room and you're working on something good you're gonna if it's going well you're gonna need a bigger room but when you're in a bigger room let, let me find the lyrics to that song because it does relate to this concept okay here are the lyrics well you're in your little room and you're working on something good but if it's really good you're gonna need a bigger room and when you're in the bigger room you might not know what to do you might have to think of how you got started sitting in your little room the la 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 Ugh, that relates to the concept as well this, there's a lot going this is, I'm, I'm trying to piece something together here there's a lot of moving parts you know but I guess the, the ultimate practical answer I'm looking for is how to approach creating virtual spaces right where you have complete control over what it's going to look like or do you have complete control the, our limitations in the real world seem to be economic you know I've, I've gone through the process in this house for example remo- like we, we kind of did some improvements in the basement it was so expensive it's months long process is so involved it takes so much out of you doing even little changes So that's why we're saying that in the virtual world, 
construction costs are much less. But it's still you're still facing the same. You need to come up with an idea of what you want it to be before it can be anything, right? So yes, in the virtual world, it can be anything, but it's limited by what we can think of and what we can conceive of and what we want, right? The 3D engine in the metaverse can render anything. Should we render a physical space like the one we're living in or render something completely alien, a mass series of shapes and patterns that we can interact with? It doesn't have to look like the real world at all. Could that be a possibility? If you were to take it to an extreme, like what really, if you have complete freedom creating interactive spaces is is modeling it after the real world just the first step or would it be I guess what this depends on is what is really ultimately behind the designs of the spaces we're living in, in the and working in in the real world and as I'm implying I think there's some deeper forces at work that would also apply to the virtual world. Because I guess you can say in the end it's a series of experiences and this those experiences can be more or less meaningful, satisfying, important feeling, right? And the nature of the space that you're in affects the, obviously, the experience. And then there's the people you're with, the interaction with people, etc., that produce the overall experience. And from our particular challenge of, you know, how to construct our virtual radio station, it's also going to be in a collective world where other people are living as well. So what they have designed is also going to be uh, relevant, right? And I suppose there's some limitations in terms of every bit of geometry is is taxing the server and thus making it more expensive i recall in second life they uh call them prims uh, primitive objects like a cube or a sphere that you would build up various objects out of that there were certain a limitation of the number of prims for each server region right uh, because beyond which the server you'd need another server and you're sort of basing it on one server or one virtual server per area of the virtual world. So there would be some natural limitations there, though I imagine as technology increases, those limitations should be less. And for something like what we're doing, right, where, where for example, in Ramble or the Rampler or this show, The Overnightscape, it's very much what what the audio content is partially based on observations of the space that you're in, right? So I'm walking around New York City. I I can be talking about an unrelated topic, or then I could talk about, oh, wow, look over there. There's something weird going on over there down the street. So, again, for us, it would it be just building a like a building with studios and rooms in it or creating spaces that you can explore that you can talk about as you're doing a show hmm. 
And then, of course, like one thing I've mentioned, you know, starting with the Rampler and then, you know, when I evolved that back into the overnightscape, recording a lot in New York, in New York City, New York City itself becomes a character, becomes a an aspect. It becomes a part of the audio content, right? It's your host that's sort of wandering around New York City, and then New York City becomes part of the meaning of, of the audio content, right? So I did always feel, like especially with imag- the imaginary radio station in the brief night station project, that the virtual radio station became almost like a character, became a, an aspect of that audio content. So naturally, any metaverse location is going to become part of the, the audio content itself. But it feels like having complete freedom to design it goes against the spirit of a humble space where, oh my God, this is all we could afford and this is the space. Whereas in the real world, you might say, again, and I know this is a bit of a fringe theory, that your creative process in the future is draining energy from the place in the present so that the manifestation of, oh, well, it's all we could afford, this kind of crummy space, is really a manifestation of uh, the energy that's being put into the creative product itself, right, affecting the entire process from the very beginning to the very end, right, considering, right, the creative process is affecting the past and the future that the location that you choose when in the early part of the project is being affected by the later part of the project without you even knowing it. Is this making sense? I don't know. I feel like I'm onto something here, but it's just I, I, I'm not able to pull, put the pieces together. It's a big puzzle. But that phenomenon, as it as it relates to a virtual space, that's one of the big unanswered questions. Like, for example, if we create sort of the equivalent of the Ion Storm offices, just the most beautiful, aesthetically pleasing uh, radio station building, right? Would that affect things? Would it matter how grand it is or how, you know, or how small and humble and crummy it should, should you make a virtual space that is small and crummy deliberately? Urgh, I can't figure it out. All right, I'll keep thinking about this. It's a tough, tough issue, though, right? <laughs> yeah, but it feels like somewhere in this mess I've created here, there's there's an important question about virtual spaces but I'll continue working on it anyway this is kind of interesting I'm looking at in my mirror I'm looking at a reflection of of a, of a painting on the wall or a print on the wall that has a glass surface that's making another reflection looking at all these multiple reflections kind of reminds me of that show art recently where there's that rental car office that had all those multiple reflections see all of these reflections of reflections of reflections is reflecting the complex nature of, of our discussion right now. Thank you. 
with that, I'd like to say thank you for patching in to this episode of The Overnightscape. I am your host, Frank Edward Nora. We're here in the Onsuga radio station inside a book. So yeah, in the virtual universe, our building should be shaped like the book, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, just go to onsug.com. That's short for The Overnightscape Underground. You get all the information that you need. Don't forget that the 20th anniversary is coming up, and I set up a phone number so you can leave a voice message for the 20th anniversary show. That phone number is 949-ONS-20th, or area code 949. You know, this is in the United States. It's a California number. It was. It's absolutely incredible. I don't think I even talked about this, uh, right? The fact that that number was available, I, I got it on Google Voice right a free service and i just looked up ons overnightscape 20th anniversary 20th which is 6672084 the number was available yes it's in 949 which is a california area code but i couldn't not take it right can you please uh start calling you can you can leave multiple messages uh, area code, U.S. area code 949. Is this like long distance for people to call it out of the country? I don't think they even have long distance anymore, do they? There's so many of those free phone services. I'm sure it won't cost too much money to do it. Uh, but yeah, call nine area code 949-667-2084. That's ONS 20th. If you look at the little numbers on the uh, the keypad. 949-667-2084. I love that I'm talking about a phone number. Call today, 949-667-2084, and leave your message, your audio message that we replayed. We still have some time. It's over two months away. Um, The 20th anniversary episode of The Overnight Escape is coming up on March 27th, 2023. It will also be episode 2000, by the way. It just worked out that way. Uh, Please leave your message. I'd love to hear from you. And I'll keep reminding you. And if it's after the fact... Oh, well, I guess this is mainly for people in the uh, the near future rather than the far future. But if you're past that point, how did the an- anniversary episode go? I hope it went well. <laughs> Listen, I'm trying. I'm trying to do stuff for the anniversary episode. Anyway, and the phone number will be in the show description as well. Do it. Call up. Yes. <coughs> Don't forget you can uh, participate in Overnightscape Central. Each week, there's a new topic put forth by PQ River in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And we are in a uh, kind of a special phase here. In 2023, we're doing the Beatles. And uh, we did two general Beatles uh, entries. I hope you enjoyed those. I I have a lot to say about the Beatles. But now we're doing uh, the albums. And uh, this week, we're doing the very first album, Please Please Me, from 1963. And... uh, you know, I really didn't know if I would have enough to say about it, but I wound up going over 50 minutes on just on that first album. I learned a heck of a lot and a fascinating topic, really, that first album. I did not know they had never been in a recording studio before, or at least not to any extent. George Martin brought the Beatles into the recording studio at Abbey Road from 10 a.m. in the morning. It was like February 11th or something, 1963. Starting at 10 a.m., they went to 11 p.m., recorded the entire album in one day, including several monster hits that have, you know, become Beatles classics. Like I saw her standing there, etc. Yes, Please Please Me, etc., etc. So anyway, 
you can be involved too. Please check out the latest episode of Overnight Escape Central to find out how you can participate. Send your audio in. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please do. Of course, this project is the Overnight Escape Underground. We're, we are a radio station inside a book. Go to onsug.com, O-N-S-U-G.com. You can buy the book. You can download the book as a PDF for free. I'm working on a new edition for this year. And uh, please get involved. We have over 13,000 hours of content in the archive. We have a unique style. We're a non-commercial project, and we're very focused on people listening in the near and far future. That is what makes our project unique. I'm going to get up and walk towards this mirror here and look at the reflections within the reflections within the reflections, which is quite appropriate because you're about to enter a hall of mirrors yourself, an audio hall known as The Other Side. Database is computer ease for lists of things to which the computer has access and which it can sort in almost any manner. If a lot of people have access to the information from different computers in different places, then it's called a data bank. Hmm, makes sense. There are perhaps more uses for a home computer using a database software program than any other. Right, and new ones are being thought up every day. That's right. When you have a home computer, you're talking about having your own personal infallible secretary. Who's always on time. Never quits in a huff. And doesn't like taking dictation on your knee. I love it. Here's a typical day for me. Oh, I think I'll stay in bed. I've also told the computer to remind me to make these calls. And who is Lola LaGrange? Uh, of course, if I wanted to, I could tell the computer not to display this uh, personal reminder unless it was prefixed by a code known only to me. If you wanted to. Yes. But Jane and I have no secrets from each other. Lola LaGrange, sweetheart, is our plumber. Oh, of course. This reminder is a combination of things Steve has put into the computer's memory and information the computer already had stored away. Mm -hmm. Like Aunt Gertrude's birthday. And Lola LaGrange. <laughs> this particular program, really, can be a lifesaver for somebody as busy as I am. And, of course, it can uh, reschedule your whole day should an emergency or a cancellation arise. As has been known to happen now and again. <laughs> there are any number of ways a computer can help you in the kitchen. Well, not by scrubbing floors or that sort of thing. It can do more than just store recipes. The Smiths let's say, have been to our place for dinner several times, and they always reciprocate. Now, Madeline Smith is a very fussy eater, and she's always wearing something new. Mm -hmm. And here's how the computer helps out. Now, this is almost a year ago, and I don't think Madeline's memory stretches back any farther than that. Uh, when was the next time? And so we'd continue until I've decided what not to wear and what not to cook. <laughs> now come the big decisions. I think I'll wear the silver pantsuit. Oh, George, I love it. I'm not sure about Madeline. And then I've been wanting to try cacciuccio. Do you uh, wear that or eat it? It's Italian seafood stew. Did you say seafood? Uh-huh. Halibut, cod, scallops. Scallops? Oh, 
scallops, madeleine, allergy. Right. I'll do meatloaf. But uh, madeleine does not eat red meat. Chicken loaf? Sounds good. Anyway, three days later, when we've decided on a menu, the computer will store it all for us. Wine? An unpretentious little pui for sale? Perfect. If you have an extensive wine cellar, you can keep a record of that too, of course. And it's all there in the machine's memory when you need to refer to it. When you have a computer, you never need to overbuy or worse, have guests sitting at the table and you discover that there isn't enough to go around. <laughs> Let's suppose we've invited the Los Angeles Philharmonic for a brunch, all 80 of them. This is suppose. Oh, you, yes, absolutely. In that case, I'll give them crab meat quiche. First of all, I access the recipe. Now, in order to feed the Los Angeles Philharmonic... Plus you and me. I simply tell the computer to display the same recipe for 82 people with the help of a spreadsheet. Uh-huh. And this will save a lot of time adding up uh, three teaspoons of butter, two eggs, six cups of sugar, and so on. Computers are certainly thorough. And they certainly save a lot of time. In Steve's pre-computer days, he could never find a phone number. Well, that's not exactly right, Jane. I, I had a little black book. The only thing was, I always forgot to put the numbers in it. Mm -hmm. He'd jot numbers down on a piece of paper and then hunt through the wastebasket for 20 minutes trying to find it. <laughs> then I'd look through my desk. And he'd go through all his books to see if he'd use the scrap as a bookmark. <laughs> but now, with my computerized database, all I have to do is punch in the name. Uh, let's see now. Uh, how about Ron Rascal? An old high school buddy of Jane's. Here's Ron's phone number, address, family details, birthday, everything. Now, on Jane's birthday, Ron gave her an awful plastic statue of boy George. Ron will live to regret that because it's there on the computer. And when his birthday comes around, we'll just check his file and send him a plastic statue of Ronald Reagan.
We'd like to get both of you in the field of view of the camera for a minute. Neil and Buzz, uh, the President of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you. Over. That would be an honor. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. This is Houston out. Neil and Buzz, I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. I just can't tell you how proud we all are of what you For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. 
and for people all over the world. I am sure they too join with the in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. And as you talk to us from the sea of tranquility, it inspires us to redouble our efforts to bring peace and tranquility to Earth. For one priceless moment in the whole history of man, all the people on this earth are truly one. One in their pride in what you have done. And one in our prayers that you will return safely to earth. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but and of peace of all nations and with interest and a curiosity and, and with the vision for the future. Uh, honor for us to be able to participate here today. And thank you very much and I look forward, all of us look forward to seeing you on the Hornet on Thursday. Look forward to that very much, sir.
legacy is evil beyond exorcism, a web of terror with no escape. The legacy is not a story for the nervous. Catherine Ross and Sam Elliott star as young lovers trapped by the power of the legacy. The legacy, Certificate X, now at the Warner West End, scene Leicester Square, Studio Oxford Street and Odeon, Chelsea, North London from Sunday. City of pay with gold. A wheel turn round, but the brake won't hold. I don't want to be the one who's flying fun, but might have to bail before the ride is done. Hill and Gully run. Down yonder in the new lost city sun. 1800 miles south of Kingdom Come. Ain't no better roses when it's said and done. Some folks turn the heat off, shake, rattle, and cough. I just let my heater run till the gas man turns it off. Away down in the new lost city sun, Hillengalera. Standing in a puddle on a slingshot lane Singing holly gully in the pouring rain All my wash hung on the line It plays that way every time I might as well just stick out my thumb and head Back where I started from Hill and gully run Way down yonder in the new lost city sun 1800 miles south of kingdom come Ain't no better roses when it's said and done Hill and Gully run Some folks take medicine, others bear the pain Don't ask me what I said again, the answer's still the same Down in the new lost city sun Hill and gully run Strolling into battle in government clothes Singing holy gully through a broken nose Tenements revolving like a New Year's batch I'd save the world but I'm short on cash I'd love to do it if it could be done Without getting out of bed before half past one Down yonder in the new lost city sun 1800 miles south our kingdom come Ain't no better roses when it's said and done Hill and gully run Reading the new lost city times Staring in another man's mirror Fuck 
bucket of slime with a byline deadline draw here. Way down in the New York City sun, Hill and Gully run. Catch a cab, you might beat the train. You save five minutes, but what do you gain? Check my course and set me straight. Lay a nine-ounce hammer on my plate. You can score six with the price of one, but there's no return when the deal is done. In the new lost city sun Ain't 90 miles out the kingdom come Ain't no better us when it's said and done Hill and Galley run Some folks drinking molasses Others drink a hundred proof wine Forget where they park their asses Try to take a right on mine Down in the new lost city sun Hillingley run Sal dying Eddie on the midnight run Sal got a hitman, Eddie got none Die got a suitcase packed with lace A cold expression on her face I don't want to have to be the one To scrape you up when the party's done In the new lost city sun 1800 miles out the kingdom come Ain't no bed of roses when it's said and done Hill and gully run If you want to talk about that, oh, I could tell you all kinds. Of oh, I'm we have sure great, good. we have great things like that in Kansas. I bet. Do you have Dorothy? Nope. In Kansas? No. Nope. No. Oh, it's kind of sad. No, that was just a movie. <laughs> where do you where do you come from, Bill? Are you? Some people have said that you were an alien, that you're from Mars. Well, Is you that know, true? people. Yeah. Because uh, where do these thoughts come out of your head? That. I <laughs> think I'm from Illinois. Is that where you're really from? Illinois? Yeah. You didn't grow up in Kansas. I, no, I was told I was born in a hospital. I believe uh, I don't have any reason not to believe that. Why? Well, I, I don't, don't remember think that. See, I don't think there should be any other reason. Uh, born in uh, a hospital in uh, small, Kiwani, small Illinois. Place. And then you moved to Kansas. Uh, later, uh-huh. I moved to Kansas with my family. It wasn't my idea. Uh-huh. I, you, before you guys leave, um, you're going to have to. Um, sign an embarrassment record we have here because I got two of the original members from the embarrassment who is well, very well appreciated in this in this station. Oh, good. There are embarrassment fans still yeah, out there. Yeah, the price does go up once in a while. <laughs> I, 
How does it? How does it feel? Oh, I, that's not what you meant. <laughs> no, not that embarrassment. That. Oh, the I band. I thought you meant the records appreciate in value. Your records, embarrassment, embarrassment records. <laughs> oh well, uh, well I don't, <laughs> let's not go too far, shall we? Woody, how does it feel to be playing so with your playing bit. with your old band member after all these years? How'd that happen? Oh, it <laughs> feels great. It feels great. Um, this is Woody I, I can't tell you who was formerly in the Delphuegos, and then you moved to L.A. Yes. And how did that how did that happen? Go well, ahead, sing, sing, Bill. That's fine. Just warming up my voice. Yeah. Got to keep it straight. Have you got, got a, Mikey a big D's. show this weekend? Got to keep it. Yeah, we'll talk about the big show in a moment. We got a Woody question. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh well, I I recall uh, receiving a letter from from uh, Bill, a postcard saying uh, that it would be really. Uh, Dear Woody, <laughs> it would be a uh, uh, good thing for us to work together again. Is it okay if I smoke in here? You can't smoke in the what studio. It's such a bad thing. Oh, you can smoke okay. out in the hallway where All Cool right. Steve is. Well, uh, uh, Carol Merrill, show us where Cool Steve is. Oh wait a minute, Carol Merrill, Carol Merrill, show us where Cool Steve is. There he is. He's over here. He's holding up his box of cigarettes. See him? <laughs> so that's where you have to smoke out in the hallway. I was trying to do the uh, Wheel of Fortune thing, but it's not going to work on that bell. As I remember, you could play those drums. What are you doing presently? That's what the letter said. Oh, great. I, I thought you were talking to me as well. I'm presently looking for a band. Sincerely, Bill. <laughs> Mary, what's your uh, stake in all this? You're always hanging around with these big dipper dudes. What's going on here? Is there some hot dirt I can spread around the local airwaves right now? Well, my, you can tell I have, I have Mrs. Applegate. Oh, <laughs> and I found oh, some I rancid trash. <laughs> mm. You should definitely see the movie. Rent it. You sound just like I her. You kind of look like her now. Now that I think about it, Mary Foyer, Mary Biggins, Jesus Christ, Ball of Confusion, Ticketmaster, Repoff. Foyer uh, is the stalker chairman of the local scene. It's kind of nice. Think about that. Stalker's great. I'm Would more into Carol. Oh. Carol Channing's great too. Or Carol Merrill. Steve Gregor. Steve. <laughs> um, so after all, after all these years, you came back to play with your old bandmates. Well, did you get any other offers from a, other bands? Were you doing a, anything musically out in LA? Oh yes, I I'd done many things in, in LA. Uh-huh. I, uh, I know you're an actor. I know you've done some TV I've out there. Done some, done, done, I've done a little <laughs> bit of acting. Uh, I produced uh, some things and uh, got to work with some really good people. And then uh, Bill proposed that... Uh, he suggested that we do a little trial thing mm-hmm. and uh, s- put the dipper together in the studio with a number of songs and and we just and, the, and it was a trial thing and it just it's sort of like it clicked again didn't it it was like an old lover well, it's kind of like uh like riding a bicycle oh i i meant that too you got training wheels wheels bill
Chris Shirley for This Week in East Brunswick. Welcome to my restaurant guide. We're standing outside of Farrell's Restaurant, which is located at the Brunswick Square Mall in East Brunswick. We will be stepping inside to talk with the manager, Bill Nidell. I'm sure everyone in this area has been to Farrell's at least once. Bill, can you tell me a little bit about the history of Farrell's? Farrell's opened almost 20 years ago in September out in the West Coast in Oregon, and today we have almost 100 stores through 25 states. I noticed on the way out of the restaurant you have a candy store as well. Was this part of the original idea of the restaurant? Yes, most Farrell's do have the candy sections. They were introduced to help add to the old-time mystique. Bill, you told me earlier that Farrell's just recently changed its image. What type of an image change has it gone through? Can you talk a little bit about that? Recently, Farrell's did a market survey throughout the country, finding out what our customers were really interested in. And what we found out is they enjoyed a more quiet atmosphere without the noise and the drum and the siren. And they also were interested in a more quality-oriented food menu. So what will be added or changed on the menu? We've upgraded the menu to include two steaks, a New York strip steak and a sirloin steak sandwich. We've also begun using fresh meat for all our hamburgers, which are a third of a pound. So what is the most popular hamburger on your menu? Well, I think our bacon cheeseburger is the most popular. That, again, is a third-pound hamburger with Swiss cheese and four strips of bacon. Bill, I also noticed you have dinner entrees on your menu. Maybe you can talk to me a little bit about those. Besides the New York strip steak that I talked about before, we have three entrees, chicken, fish, and an all-beef steak dinner, all for $3.95, which comes with our new old-fashioned french fries and salad bar. So I see Farrell still features there are four different varieties of birthday parties. That's right, and we do specialize in children's parties. And, of course, we do have all the other ice cream fantasies that people have been coming to Farrell's for for years. for eight years and we'd like to thank Bill Nidell and Farrell's restaurants and I'm Chris Shirley for this week in East Brunswick and until next time good dining <laughs>